good evening, dear listeners, wherever you are, and welcome to episode three of the Horror Cult Films podcast. I'm David Smith, and joining me today are Ross Hughes and Jim Lamming. Say hi, guys. Hello. And we are a trio of Lost Boys ready to discuss the Lost Boys trilogy. The original is an iconic classic that I suspect all of us grew up on and still love to this day. Arguably one of the most influential vampire films ever made, and certainly the most 80s. Of course, this isn't all we've been seeing, so why don't we begin by discussing a few of our recent watches. Jim, let's kick off with yourself. What have you been watching lately? Quite a lot, actually. But my favourite recent watch is going to be the Sister Street Fighter box set that I picked up on Blu-ray last week, the week before. What's Sister Uh, Street Fighter? It's a Japanese martial arts uh, series. Um, It's like an exploitation type thing. Uh, Made in the 70s, quite sleazy, very funky, very bright, and very entertaining. The first picture, at least, was brilliant. I don't think I've been too acquainted with this side of martial arts cinema. I kind of picked up on more modern films. So a lot of the older 70s and 80s pictures, I've never really had much familiarity with. Even the likes of Bruce Lee, I've never, to be honest, been able to get into him. Even Enter the Dragon, I've never found that entertaining. But these films are absolutely wild. The I've, I've watched the first three. It's a box set of four, and the plot has been almost exactly the same for each film. The final destination of martial arts. <laughs> Pretty much. It's it's wonderful. It's a Japanese businessman. He's evil. Um, his business is a front for making money illegally, basically. The first one is the drugs, as it's referred to in the films. <laughs> the second one is diamond smuggling, which they actually smuggle uh, being sewn into women's ass cheeks. What? And the third film is gold smuggling. And each time the protagonist has a family member or a close friend kidnapped by the evil corporation, completely unrelated to the fact that it is the protagonist's relative, they just happen to have to go and rescue them. And every time someone close to then is either maimed, killed, or maimed and then killed uh, in the most bizarre, brutal, and hilarious way. And it is some of the most entertaining martial arts films I've seen in many, many years and are so funny and exciting. And the music is so funky. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really, really silly stuff. And I had an absolute blast watching it. I am glad to hear it. It made me think of, uh, what's that martial arts film with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Rob Schneider where they take on a counterfeit jeans company? Knock off, that's the one. Knock off, that's it, yeah. One of the movies, when I heard the premise, I was like, is that a real thing? Um, Ross, what about yourself? What have you been watching lately? Well, bloody hell. No, I'm not having a Silent Hill Revelations flashback, David and Jim. (laughs) But the title of a delightful little horror comedy that I hope will find some love out there. Uh, ben O'Toole is fantastic in a role that channels the spirit of Bruce Campbell's Ash in Evil Dead. 
In fact, the entire film feels like an early homage to Big Sam's heyday, without the deadites and the cabin, of course, even replacing the chainsaw with a golf club in one particular scene. It's quality. It does. It's, it honestly is pretty good. And if you've ever watched Die Hard and you feel that you could do what John McLean did, then I'm telling you, bloody hell sends out the perfect <laughs> message. You can't, right? Basically, it's about a hero who thinks he's John Wick. He's not. He goes on holiday, encounters a murderous family, and he, alongside, now I practice this deep breath, is visible on-screen conscious comedy psychic. Yes. Decides to fight back. It's a daft, at times hilarious, bloody flick. That's a perfect beer movie for the weekend. But I recommend it for... It's a, it's a really good film, it is. It also sounds quality. It made me think of Big Trouble in Little China. One of the things I yeah. rather enjoyed about that is uh, your, your good guy in that. He thinks he's a protagonist, but he's a comic yeah. relief sidekick. And that yeah. Kind, of, yeah. kind of always brilliant. If you think you could be in a martial arts film, you'd fuck it up. Like this boy yeah. does. Well, it, he just takes everything on board. He's not. He's, he's a likable character. I don't want to spoil anything for you. And uh, even when he might, even when he encounters his family, you know, he just takes everything where you stride. And his conscious appears in front of him, who's quite a acid tongue, you know. But uh, it's brilliant, honestly. I don't want to spoil it for any, anyone. Secondly, Willy's Wonderland. No, I haven't been surfing the other <laughs> section online, but of course, it's Nicolas Cage's new horror thriller. Uh, in which he must have looked at the script, guys, and thought, easy PD. Yep, that's a really bad impression, Nicolas Cage, so I do apologise. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he does not act at the one single word in this film. Now, if you can knock off a few brain cells, then you enjoy the staff horror. Cage fighting off evil animatronics who spew out black blood. What more do you want in your life? And let's be honest, Nicolas Cage is so damn watchable as always. Oh, yeah, I mean, even in shit things, Nicolas Cage is still really watchable. I can think of the Wicker Man remake, for instance, Ghost Rider. Things yeah. like, you know, if you, don't know if you guys have seen the community episode about this where we're discussing if Nicolas Cage is either, like, a genius or if Nicolas Cage is shit. There's a sense of self-awareness about everything that he seems to do. Yeah. And uh, particularly as he's gotten older, I reckon, as well, he's sort of having one of those sort of... I don't know if it's late enough to be his late career right now, but he's, um, you know, he certainly had a, a series of huge troughs. Yeah. But at the same time, he always seems to come bouncing back with something that's totally well, out there. his career path is probably on the same level with the likes of, you know, Bruce Willis, you know, straight to DVD fodder. Mm. And, you know, every Monday, you know, Bruce Willis seems to appear on every single DVD cover. He's, he's clearly waiting for Die Hard 6. And after Die Hard 5, do, uh, do we really need it? You know, that question out then. But, you know, in Willis's films, let's be honest, they're fucking awful, aren't they? 100% of them are absolutely <laughs> terrible, right? But Cage, he must have a fantastic agent. You've got Killer of Space, you've got Mandy, you've got Willie's Wonderland. His agent is clearly targeting films in which Cage can show his zany personality. And I am actually excited to see what he brings out next. You know, which is totally bizarre because it's not 1997 and I haven't watched Cornet for the first time. <laughs> Aye, because like with uh, with color color uh, out of space, like that was one of those movies that was unexpectedly really good. Kick Ass is another one that he's brilliant in. Yeah, the, the mm, Adam West yeah. impression that was brilliant. Mm. Yeah, he's so good, and as you know, the Batman clone, he's really good. He is. 
But, you know, he's picking his films that just suit them. They're not box office films, you know, but they're so damn watchable. And I think he deserves that last big film. He deserves it, let's be honest. Finally, if you listen to our last podcast, then you would have heard how Steph mentioned this programme. So, yes, guys, I've decided to binge watch Emmydale from the beginning. <laughs> the be- from the beginning? I don't know. It started in 1972. I am currently on 1973. I must admit, bit of a slow burn. <laughs> I'm, on the epi- I'm on the episode where Annie Sugden cows are falling ill and the suspense is killing me. I have been t- but I have been told that a plane crashes and kills many people in the year 1993. So I will get there. But of course, I'm joking because our boss, Steph, is, no, is missing tonight. So that'll be a nice surprise for her when she does listen to our episode three podcast. Yeah, I don't know what she'll be watching right now. I assume she's watching some sort of creature feature like, uh, I don't know... Uh, Zombievers or something along those lines. Um, folks, what I've been watching lately, today I saw the movie I Care A Lot. Cracking film. That is just amazing. Brilliant. It's my favourite film of the year so far. I know we're very early days, but if I can justify it as being a horror, which I really can't, then it'll probably end up in my top ten by the end of this year. Maybe I'll say top ten suspense films to include uh, thrillers as well. Yeah. Um, say... Very dark, cynical caper where we don't have anyone who's like a goodie in it. And something else about it, though, is it never loses sight of the seriousness of its subject matter. You know, because uh, it's about conservators, right? And I didn't really know what conservator was until I watched the um, promise this is going to stay on horror here. This isn't going to be the, the new Emmerdale. I was watching the new <laughs> documentary about Britney Spears the other night, right? Because uh, Britney Spears, I don't know about you guys, but she just seemed to vanish off the face of the earth around 2010. I had no idea what's going on with her. But um, it turns out she's, uh, her father is her conservator, where her father is basically in charge of her expenses and uh, in charge of all of her income as well. She's currently still performing gigs and stuff like this to very large audiences. They deem that she's fit to do that. But she's getting absolutely sawed all back for this, right? Um, you know, she's just basically there as a vehicle for making money. And uh, I saw that last week, heard, heard about this, and went, oh, it's a thriller that appears to be based around conservators. This sounds quite interesting, and I absolutely loved it. Elsewhere, I saw uh, Shook, which is a Shudder exclusive. Uh, I can tell, but you probably had the same reaction I did. Visually, it was quite interesting, right? Like, I liked seeing the phone stuff being projected all around the walls and things like that. It had a good aesthetic, but characters weren't likable enough, and the kills weren't big enough for it to feel like it had any consequences to it. Mm. And I could have forgiven that if it had a really good twist, but it doesn't. It's got a very predictable twist. I had a choice between that and The Dark and the Wicked yesterday, so I decided to pick that one. Now... I can't judge a film because I only watched the first 20 minutes and then I was called away, so I never got back to it. But I've never been so angry with <laughs> female character in my life or any character. Is it Mia? Mia, her name was it. The first 20 minutes, that's all she did was sat on her ass. She got Alexia and he was, Alexia, we when Alexia was something like Diane, wasn't it? Diane, <laughs> put the light on. Diane, put the TV on. She was a strange noise. Diane. Uh, turn the sound up and I was thinking do something get off your backside <laughs> and there, there was one really good visual gag in the opening bit um, which was the part where we're meant to assume that they're, they're doing their like big elaborate press conference 
and it cuts to just, just four people beside a wall in the, yes, middle, of the, yeah. in the middle of the parking lot. That amused me. I thought, oh, maybe this film won't it won't uh, maybe this film won't be too bad. <laughs> like the, the the opening bit where you've got your kind of Suspiria style kill with the stiletto. That's yes, basically yes. as good as it gets. Yeah. Okay, I won't. I won't go back to. It. I think I'll watch the, the Dark and the Wicked instead. I have heard fantastic things about the Dark and the Wicked. I intend to watch that too. I'm on a holiday tomorrow, so I might try and check out that, or I'll finally watch Southland Tales, which I have sat at home. And uh, Jim, you've been watching Southland Tales recently. Yeah, uh, I got the recent Arrow release, uh, which contains the controversial can edit as well as the theatrical version. And to be quite honest, I have no idea why anyone would have booed that film when they first showed it. I thought it was incredible. It somehow toes this really incredible line between melancholy and euphoria and manages to keep that going throughout the film. And it just has you on the edge of your seat the entire time. And I was in love with every aspect of it. It was such an incredible film from... It's social political commentary. Uh, it's ambivalence towards everything that's going on in the world, and how good The Rock is in that film as well. <laughs> um, and I just was in love with it throughout. Um, and then going back to the theatrical version, it just baffles you how much that film's been butchered for its commercial release. It felt so much more fragmented and like you're having your hand held uh, throughout the entire film compared to that can cut, which was absolutely fantastic. It's a movie that seems to have been quite recently re-evaluated. Where I think the audience are now coming around to it. I mean, obviously having a big arrow release helps. But I've seen quite a few articles where you know, people who previously hated it are going, ah, you know, now it's actually, it's not so bad, or even saying, oh, it's a misunderstood masterpiece. With Richard Kelly, I met him once when I was doing an interview with him in London. It was, in a way, a little bit grim, just because, you know, when Donnie Darko came out, everyone's like, oh, you know, this guy, you'll be the new David Lynch, you know? And um, it's a bit like with him, like Shyamalan, where I think there was a lot of hype attached to him based upon an early release. Uh, I say I say early release. I can't remember if Six Sense was M Night Shyamalan's debut or if it was technically. Yeah, it was. One. Yeah, it was. It okay. Was. Um, yes, yeah, so you got a lot of hype very early on, and uh, Donnie Darko, I think, uh, you know, it achieved mainstream success in a way that obviously his two follow-ups didn't. I mean, fair play to him with the uh, the box. I don't think he compromised himself artistically at all when he made that film. I probably would have liked it if he had compromised himself some more. But like the box, he had such a great concept for the first half hour, 40 minutes. But, you know, with Richard Kelly, he just loved doing his world building. And I think there's always going to be the sort of sense of apocalypse about the sorts of movie, movies that he's interested in doing. So uh, he's apparently working on something new, I believe, isn't he? It's on our new site. It's got to be true. He's uh, currently, well, I know he's got an idea for a return to the Donnie Darko universe. That's that's the idea. He's keeping things dark. We, we've got no idea what it's going to be, but I'm quite interested to see, you know, anything's going to be better than S. Darko, let's be honest. Oh, God. <laughs> that, was, uh, that wasn't pretty, that one. I know it's a big what if, but they really should have left alone. I, I, I was a fan of Southland Tales when it released, finally. And I thought the film was good anyway, but having seen that original edit and then going back to that version, it's just absolutely flummoxing why they didn't just stick with that in the first place. 
he he was wanting everyone to get into a series of comics that would explain the backing story yeah, or something. Yeah. Like if the can cut, is that like is that a problem? Like does he give you the context that you would require? No, um I think a lot of what is in that version is basically just narration in the theatrical version it's kind of, it, it's similar to you know starship troopers where it's got those like newsreel mm. uh, moments and you know do you want to know more um it starts off very similar to that with uh, various news footage but it's just in timberlake narrating what's happened up to this point so I think a lot of what he's got in those comics preceding the film are still in those comics, but it does fill in a few more blanks for you rather than you letting you figure it out for yourself as the film goes on, which the original cut does. I mean, it, it doesn't try to confuse you as far as I'm aware, and you do fill in the blanks as it goes along. It's like, oh, yeah, that's that, and so on. But the uh, theatrical cut basically talks you through it and has little the visuals here and there to kind of guide you along. And it did feel a bit condescending. You don't, you don't want a film that treats you like an idiot. The last thing I want to mention that I watched is The Columnist. The Columnist is an excellent little satire about the hostility of social media. It's about a writer who always gets a bombardment of abuse at the end of her posts, so she decides to take out her trolls and uh, ends up going on a killing spree. And what I really like about this film is it a bit like trolling itself. It starts off as banter. But as the film goes on, it gets less and less funny and becomes more and more dark. So a bit of form underlining meaning there. The thing is, we agree when we're watching this film that trolls are bad, right? We, we don't like people trolling us either. We don't like nasty comments. Who the hell does? And we all know social media is bad for that. Yeah. At the same time, points out the sort of hypocrisy of a character who's dedicated to free speech whilst at the same time killing people for abusing her. Mm. And also, it uh, reminds us of all the victims of families. So the victims in it are never painted as being particularly good people, but we but it's always explicit that other people are going to miss them when they're gone. So it's an interesting bit of sort of revenge fantasy that then later condemns the audience for vicariously living through the character as she kills everybody. Folks, let's... Oh, actually, news, news. I believe there's a couple of big news, news stories recently, isn't there? We can edit this fast enough. It's not going to be totally irrelevant. I believe there's a Pet Cemetery two, Pet Cemetery prequel coming out. Yeah, Pet Cemetery two is going to be an origin tale. Uh, I, I don't know what to make of that. It's going straight to that Paramount Plus channel. Uh, I don't know what to make. I mean, what, what could they do to make you know different to the story that we already know? Yeah, because I, I assume this will probably end up being about uh, if it's meant to be an old ancient Indian burial ground. Yes, I assume that it this is, will be yeah. this will be a film about crimes against Native Americans. Uh, possibly for a bit of reincarnation towards the end, you know, maybe maybe you got you got people being attacked by a zombie army or something. I yeah. can't think of anything else to do with it. Yeah, what are they going to do? Baby and horse, and the horse comes back or something, you know, in the horse and carriage. <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, I I liked I liked the original Pet Cemetery. I, the second one with Edward Furlong went too bad. Let's be honest, with the same director. I weren't too fast on the remake. It, it it was a solid job, but again, it was a good little end. I think it was a bad ending in that one. It wasn't it wasn't the original ending, but uh, I can I can take it and leave it. I gotta be honest. With you. I absolutely loved the second one of Eddie Furlong. Yes, I, it was uh, Clancy Brown in it. It's so funny. 
and uh, him just you know becoming one of the undead here, and everyone just thinks he's a bit of a character for like, oh, you know, it's just Gus being Gus as bodies start piling up, and you just see him sitting there casually skinning some rabbits. I thought it was fantastic. Um, I also quite liked the remake. I think the, it didn't really have much thematic depth to it at all, which I do think the original one did have. There wasn't any wasn't any of the kind of big questions of it. I think it all felt a lot less personal, but I thought it was a damn sight scarier than the original one. It was a bit more serious, and it's the proper remake tone, you know, with the the new version, you know, this make it all serious and dark. But it didn't offer really anything different to the original one, apart from the ending, which I thought was better. It was a, it was a proper dark ending, which I did enjoy. Jim? I've only seen the original, um, which was going to be a good few years ago now. Uh, one of those late night TV slots where you're watching stuff you shouldn't at that age. But um, I, I did enjoy it. Um, obviously, the cat is vivid in the memory. And the old guy, you shouldn't go near that cemetery. You know, that, that sort of thing. But uh, I, I think I decided to duck out of seeing a remake in the end again. That stigma that always haunts them. Uh, is it going to be crap? Is it going to be worth my time? But well, I know it's coming on Netflix in the next week or two, so yeah. I might give it a try then. Nice one. I would say I think both films are those rare examples of movies that improve upon the book they're based on. Now, Stephen King is obviously a brilliant writer. I've read numerous Stephen King books. I love a lot of them. I think with this one, it reads a lot like he's kind of like a, an, un, an unsly chess master lining his pieces up, where it's like, all yeah. right, you know, we go, there's a there's a, a child here, a young kid. We've got these big hurtling lorries going down the road, and we've got talk of an old ancient Indian burial ground that can resurrect, <laughs> resurrect dead things. I wonder what's going to happen. When about 400 pages later, that's when the big event happens. And that was something that frustrated me the book. Anyway, um, folks, let's get to our uh, feature presentation. We're going to hit the sunny banks of Santa Clara for a film about truth, justice, and the American way. This is The Lost Boys, part one. Boys, out of curiosity, how old were you guys when you first saw this movie? I, I was... Sorry, go on, Jamie, go first. Okay, because I'll probably have a bit less to say than you. Um, <laughs> I was probably around 9 or 10. Um, there would have been late 80s, early 90s, I'm sure. I was actually around, probably asleep over my friend's house. And vividly only remember the fact that it had... Uh, Bill from Bill and Ted in it. Uh, that, that's all my brain was saying at the time. Was, oh wow, it's him! Yeah, it's in another <laughs> film. Um, yeah, the bit where the Frog Brothers find them dangling from that mine shaft and uh, trying to stake them through the heart. Yeah, that bit really stood out for me at the time, and that was my only viewing of it up until maybe about ten years ago. So that was my only experience of it, and that's pretty much all I could remember from it as well. 
I was about 10 years of age as well. I, I was lucky enough to watch it in 1987, actually. It might have been early 88, but six months after it came out in the VHS. I always remember that famous TV, uh, the video cover VHS with Keith Sutherland's face as a vampire, you know, and the Lost Boys and that lovely little logo. And it just enticed me in the video shop. And I remember renting out, which back then, you know, I had a good pen on, so then we watch anything. I think I was probably slightly old. It was after Buffy a Vampire Slayer had come out. And, uh, you know, my mates and me, we wanted to watch as many vampire things as we could. And one of the benefits of having older brothers is you get access to movies that you probably shouldn't see at that age. Yeah, we're probably about, yeah, I'm going to say, let's say 12. And uh, we watched it for the first time. I don't think we realised how funny it was. I think we took it dead seriously. And um, I watched it again years and years later. I was invited to a screening in London. It was a press screening uh, by Warner and they also they were also doing a pizza party. You know, this was the absolute perfect film to watch of a crowd. But before we really start going start dissecting it in a moment, I reckon one thing I did learn from this is when I was watching it by myself, I liked it a lot. I just didn't love it as much as I did before. And I think a large part of it was just it's good to have other folk around, you know, it's good to be laughing at it, it's good to be having fun with it. Uh, rather than sitting there taking down notes while you watch it alone in your living room. So, what are our immediate thoughts upon the film? Ross, how do you get us kicked off? Well, you know, for many, The Lost Boys is probably the pinnacle of the 80s obsession on vampire movies. You know, before that decade, the image we had of Bloodsuckers was through the legendary Hammer Horror. You know, Christopher Lee looking all broody, living alone in that huge big castle of his, repeatedly getting poked. By virgins, and not by virgins, but to the heart, by Peter Cushion in numerous sequels. But I think what the Lost Boys offered up was a sexy cast. You know, mm. you know, you got Jason Patrick, you had uh, Kiefer Sutherland, you got Jamie Gertz. You know, you had two of the biggest stars of that era back then, you know, Corey Haim, who people seem to forget how huge he was for that period in the late 80s and the early 90s. And of course, you had Corey Fieldman, the boy fresh in the minds from all the fans for being the kid that killed Jason Voorhees. You know, mm. before he before he rose from the grave as a zombified entity in part six. I think it also helped the Lost Boys that he was mouthed in the Goonies because it bizarrely makes it feel like a Goonie horror sequel, which, of course, is mentioned as an in-joke in the follow-up sequel, The Tribe, which we get to in a bit. But the Goonies actually haunts this picture because I don't know if you two know this, or listeners, but the Goonies director himself, Richard Donner, was originally attached to the project. Oh. He was he was originally down to direct it, uh, but we would have seen a different film. He would have had eight to ten year olds. I think the Fog Brothers would have been eight to ten, and the Vampires would have been thirteen to fourteen years of age. You know that's so that would be a totally totally different film. Let's be honest. So, uh, but of course, Donna left to pursue other projects. You know, more likely the Lethal Weapon franchise, which took over his directing duties in the eighties and late nineties. So when Joel took over, he changed it to what eventually became Keeping the Lost Boys title, which was inspired by Peter Pan, of course. And Fate stepped in, and because Shane Black, who had teamed up with Donna for Lethal Weapon, ended up doing another version called The Monster Squad, which is an equally much-loved film. But back to the Lost Boys, I mean, there are some serious hitters released during that period. I mean, the 80s, didn't they? They had a massive loving for creatures that go bite in the night. Uh, but The Lost Boys for Many is the one from that era. And I think it's that kind of film that does not happen a lot where all the elements come together and created this pop culture that 
every new generation discovers. It's a film passed down from parent to child, the perfect, you could say, introduction to the horror genre. Oh, yeah, because like, I'm just thinking uh, 1987 is a year. That was a big fucking year. We got Dream Warriors there. Yeah. Got Evil Dead 2, Predator. You got Hellraiser, and you also got uh, The Stepfather. And this is probably the coolest film of them all from that year. Pro- yeah, probably was. I mean, the 80s was a great decade anyway, we let's be honest. I mean, you know, they've got so many classics there. But uh, I think what The Lost Boys does is strikes the right balance between comedy and scares, like you said earlier. You know, uh, on one hand, we have the Fog Brothers giving some advice. You know, and a few screens, a few scenes later, he's laying in bed with his mum, you know, the delightful Diane West, with garlic mm-hmm. around his neck, which is, you know, which is a stupid little, it's a stupid little scene, you know, but it's, it's quite a funny scene when you look back on it. And then, as Jim said earlier, then you've got the other scene then where the gang is sneaking into the vampire's den and stalking one of the lost boys through the art. Now, that is a proper, proper dark horror scene. It really, really is. And more so when Kiva Sutherland's David chases them. You know, he fails to capture them. The sunlight then comes down and burns his hand. And you've got that little tear that rolls down his cheek. And the face expression that Kiva Sutherland gives, you know, it's like a deep satisfaction the night is coming and the, and the Lost Boys will get the revenge. And I love Kiefer Sutherland anyway, you know, thanks to Jack Bauer, but he's absolutely fantastic in that scene. Oh, and I absolutely. Think that's the, yeah, I think that's what the Lost Boys is good at. It's the scares and the laughs. It's just a perfect, it's a teenage film in it, basically. It's not a full horror film, it's a basic teenage film. It's the same with a lot of similar pictures. As you mentioned, the Monster Squad as well. There's something about having a younger cast as the protagonists yeah. going up against these, you know, horrible beings, uh, in this case, vampires. It just adds that extra element of danger to it that you don't get with adults. And I think that is one of the reasons why this is so good. Essentially, there's two films being put together here. You have your sort of younger teens up against the big bad, and then you've got your sort of older teens for a slightly more moody kind of romance that's going yeah. on in here. And uh, underpinning the whole thing, I guess, you know, you've got um, got Kiefer Sutherland as, as uh, David. He's kind of like a heart a heartthrob, glam rock, bad boy meets a speed demon. I imagine Joss Whedon took more than a little bit of spike from this part, right? Um, in fact, Kiefer Sutherland has just got such a sort of magnetic evil about him. I know that he's yeah. not the big villain of the piece, which we'll come to later on. But at the same time, um, I think something that he shows, slight spoiler for the sequels, is the importance of having that kind of magnetic screen presence about him. And he's absolutely got that. He's good. Yeah, he's, 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 every, time he's on the, every time he's on the scene, he just lights it up, doesn't he? He carries the picture. And as you quite rightly said, he's, he's got the handsome looks. He's a bike rider. Every girl would fancy him if they turn up in that film fair. Either they're more the saxophone player. You know, oh, you know. God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's, um, <laughs> that saxophone bit. I thought that was brilliant. You know, very, very like, all right. You got you got all these uh, hot stares going on between uh, Star and Michael. You got this uh, erotic saxophone player with fire going around everywhere. Like, oh uh, yeah, here's the raging hormones and stuff like that. Absolutely perfect sequence. Well, I only found this when I was doing the research for this podcast. Uh, the saxophone player. He was an actual saxophone player in real life. And you know the you know Mad Max behind Thunderdome, mm-hmm. uh, he actually done the saxophone for Tina Turner's song. Yeah, that's, uh, that is the weirdest. That's the weird <laughs> bit of trivia I've, I've 
Yeah. Yeah. Shocked me. I was thinking, what? <laughs> Thank you for checking it out. <laughs> yeah, I've, um, I'm into a band called Gunship. They're very rooted in 80s synth pop rock. And he actually played on their last album as well. Wow. Pretty... Wow. Well, let's talk about this uh, opener. Something I love about this movie is you've got this really ascendant opener. You know, you've got the camera soaring across the water to come towards this carnival. We have our vampires hanging around the carnival, immediately looking cool, immediately looking quite sexy. You've got them as the kind of the bikers, they're the rebels there. And because we're up against the cop, uh, we immediately see the appeal of the vampires. You know, something I love about this movie is the way that vampires in it, and this doesn't happen in sequels, spoiler, but we'll come to them in a moment, or many moments from now, and... Um, with the sequels, we don't get the idea that the vampires particularly enjoy being vampires in the same way they do here. You know, this is a bunch of vampires absolutely reveling in it. As they, as they say, sleep all day, party all night, never grow old, never die. <laughs> Fun to be a vampire. What sort of teenager would not slightly want to join? Yeah, you're right there, but it's probably down to the fact that they're better actors than those in the sequels as well. <laughs> It's no small part. <laughs> you know, would you rather hang out with Kiefer Sutherland or Angus yeah, Sutherland? Exactly, exactly. But th- they do have, even though it's set in the late 80s, and obviously mullets are still very popular <laughs> at this point, they still exude this absolute you know, raw magnetism that just isn't there in the new metal sequels, really. And it's... Even though it's you know not timeless whatsoever in terms of fashion, you would take them any day over what comes next. That's for sure. This is something I was wondering actually, right? Um, see, with the nineteen eighties, I reckon with the eighties, there's a nostalgic charm that we have to it. You can say, all right, I, I think I like that film. It's really eighties, and that's totally okay. You can't do that with other decades. Like I expect, if you're watching Star Wars Episode One and you're explaining this to someone, and you go. I love Star Wars Episode One. It's just the the visuals are so early noughties. It doesn't work as a compliment in the way yeah. that seeing a film's 1980s does. And I'm not sure what is about the 80s that you just can't quite put my finger on what that decade does. That sort of makes it like something that's almost, um, you know, you can spoof it very easily. And there's something a bit naff about it, but at the same time, still kind of cool. It's probably, it's, yeah. Credit to the director for a start i mean it's it's a fantastic looking film uh it's the way everything is set up just looks beautiful and uh you've got the motorcycle race that was an exhilarating moment in that film Mm. you've got uh michael uh jason patrick's character being basically accepted or groomed into this big gang and he's only just come to town, but like you can see these are the cool guys you want to be hanging around with. Mm-hmm. And just the way it's set up from, you know, start to finish of that sequence, you, you can't take your eyes off. It's just such a breathtaking moment. Just, it's only a couple of minutes at, at best. And it's, as I say, it's exhilarating. And there's just a, a look to it. It could be the backlit fog. Or it might just be the fact that it's, you know, as uh, something I mentioned last time, it's shot on film. There's no substitute for film, if you ask me, because we're going to talk about it soon. 
but the sequel looks like a dog's dinner in comparison <laughs> to this. It just looked so lifeless and drab compared to this, which is shot on actual film. Yeah, I think we're saying to that. I think the sense of the, the setting really helps a lot too. One of the things that we get with this, we don't get with the sequels, is the sort of sense of uh, Santa Clara as a place. You know, from a, from the people are strange part, we've got this juxtaposition between all the roller coasters, your bright lights, but then there's also a dark underbelly, you know? Because these missing kid posters up. Everyone knows the kids are going missing. You've got a lot of poverty as well. You know, they show a lot of people, um, like, we show people go, going into skips and stuff. You know, we get the feeling that this is a place, a community, its best days are long behind it, you know? I, I think this sort of sense of location is just something we don't get in two or three. I think the uh, other part of it is the um, family. There are people that we do care about quite early on. You know, from the beginning, Grandpa's a bit weird, a bit quirky and stuff like that. And he's the guy who buys a TV guide, but has no TV and so on. But he's immediately <laughs> likable. Yeah. Um, you know, I like uh, the sort of back and forth you got between him and Lucy. You know, Lucy, uh, she's... Diane West, you know, she's sad, she's, but she's kind of getting used to starting over again. And I like seeing uh, her relationship with Max develop as it goes on. Obviously, it doesn't end up being what uh, she wants it to be. Potentially, it leads to something that's maybe better for her, uh, maybe better for her growth as a person. And then, of course, we've got the two, uh, we've got the two brothers, Sam and Michael. Now, I think Michael is the weakest part of the film. The reason being, and... No offence, Jason Patrick here, who I've only ever seen go on to be in Speed 2. Um, with Michael, I didn't buy him and Star and their relationship. I could buy him and Sam as brothers, and that immediately create a good level of emotional stakes with film. But relationship with Star, I was like, come on, this boy's an absolute stalker. You know, just sees, <laughs> sees her, just stares at her throughout it. And then we find out that she's riding with Kiefer Sutherland here. He explicitly says, she's my girl, implying they're, uh, implying they're banging each other, at least. <laughs> it made me wonder, why the hell does he get on the bike to begin with? You're not going to mess with Kiefer Sutherland in this. And then Kiefer Sutherland tries to kill him, to which he's like, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go and hang out with you guys in your, in, uh, in your caves and all that. I don't know, I think there's a very intentionally a kind of homoerotic subtext of the whole thing of uh, Michael being seduced by Kiefer Sutherland's character here. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the intention, as is revealed a little later on, was to lure him back to their lair, and he was going to be Star's first kill, wasn't he? Mm. Um, so obviously there was a setup there, but I think it was just, like, these are obviously the alpha guys on the boardwalk or, wherever it was they're hanging around and obviously he's new in town she wants to make an impression he gets his ear pierced he gets the leather jacket which also made an impression on a lot of people i grew up around i can tell you that because there was quite a few lads in their uh, mid-teens who would rock that exact same look <laughs> the, the mullet the ear piercing the leather jacket uh, and when i first saw lost Boys, i was like ah okay <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think the fact that he is welcomed into the fold pretty much straight away, it was probably what appealed to him as much as anything else. There's that side of acceptance in this strange town. Mm. But on the other end of that, how do they know he wasn't 
fucking Van Helsing. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon with uh, one other thing when I mentioned the homoerotic subtext to it, it was when the first time I was watching it, I was going, "Who's that guy that Sam's got on his wall?" I realised on rewatch it's Rob Lowe. He's Rob got Lowe in his off. pants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Rob Lowe in his pants. I, so I, re- I reckon we're start- I reckon that's part of the sub the subtext there. Um, <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean with Joel Schumacher directing it again as well. That's that set decoration of Sam's bedroom was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> that giant Molly Ringwald poster, I would kill for that one. I can <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> and then yeah, and it sort of showed you at a different angle and there's Rob Lowe in some boxer shorts on his <laughs> wardrobe door while he's putting his new taxidermy beaver away. <laughs> I liked that as a uh, as a bit of set dressing. In terms of other things in this that really worked, let's talk about the Frog Brothers. For me, they, their scenes are the best bits of the film, and yeah. so much of it comes down to Corey Feldman, who is such a great performer of that age. The deep voice that he's doing all the way through it, you know, is uh, as a matter of fact, way he just tells him to kill his brother. I love <laughs> yeah. this. So I was wondering, right? Did you interpret it as uh, the Frog Brothers? Did you guys interpret that they'd ever killed a vampire before? Oh, I don't know. No, I don't think I actually ever thought about that. I just thought they were people who read comic books who had a bit of an idea. And I thought they sensed the opportunity when Sam turned up asking for Batman magazine number 14. <laughs> it's quite interesting because when Corey Feldman was filming it, uh, I think he started off filming quite a lighter tone, but Joel Schumacher said to him, no, I want you to act like you're a cross between Chuck Norris and Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and, and that's what he done in Fair Play. And he carried on into the sequel as well, you know, part two and part three as well, which again, we get to in a bit. The dinner scene was my, was my yeah. favourite. <laughs> with the uh, garlic whatever trying to you know showing him his reflection I mean fair dues to uh, to Edward Herman as well I don't even know him as the uh, snobbish grandfather from Gilmore Girls yeah. it's weird kind of re-watching this and going oh yeah yeah it's the same dude you know um, the reveal of him at the end as a head vampire yeah how do you guys feel about that with a big twist well I was like I said I was 10 when I saw that film for the first time and I think for an adult generation watching now, brought up on the likes of Buffet and all that, we'll probably see that twist coming a mile off. But for me at that age, you know, I never saw it come in. And I was actually generally surprised and stunned, you know, when it was, the reveal was there. But I've got to be honest with you, there's one scene that did leave a lasting impression for me. When Max asked Michael, as he's the head of the family, to invite him in, you know, can he come into the house because he's head of the family? And mm. I was totally unaware that a vampire could not enter your house without an invitation back then. And to see that play out was fantastic. And it just stayed with me forever. You know, the scene when, like, Joyce invites Angel into a home in Buffy and aware that he's not only a vampire, but now he's turned back into Angelus. You've got to let the right one in, as we see. I, I, I was going to come to that as well. And aware, you know, that he was a vampire. I didn't realise how much danger Joyce was in because of the Lost Boys. And as you quite rightly said, you know, special shout out to let the white one in, as I often wondered what would happen if a vampire tries to enter, and they give that answer to an absolute fantastic effect. Let's <laughs> <they? laughs> be honest with you, that, that scene is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. It, it was also interesting that we're using that scene to undermine the idea of him as a head vampire, so we immediately assume it's David. And then we're yeah. like, ah, the twist was they were right to begin with. Yeah, it was it was pretty neat that they, although they kind of stuck to what is 
you know, the established rules. They just add their little twists onto it here and there where, you know, oh, it didn't work on me because you let me in. So it, it was a fun way of dispelling the theory that he was a head vampire. I liked that little dinner table scene. That was, uh, that, that was good to set up that ending. I reckon the third act for it was brilliant as well. Like that whole siege on the house there, you know, you've got them sort of setting it up Elm Street style, you know, getting their, uh, yeah. getting their traps ready, getting their weapons ready. And, uh, you know, when the vampires do come, a bit like the fire scene, actually, they, um, you know, Schumacher shows that he can, he can, he can stage horror if he wants to. But once the shit hits a fan, we've got some really nice kills going on in there. I loved seeing the dog get its paws dirty there too. And then that that airborne fight with Kiefer Sutherland. Sorry to keep on going on about Kiefer Sutherland there. (laughs) I I don't know. I I imagine that regardless of one's, uh, regardless of one's sexual orientation, I think everyone's a little bit Kiefer sexual at the end of the day. I had a massive, (laughs) I was such a fan on 24. I had such a man question, um, Kiefer Sutherland. I was such addicted to it and I'll watch anything with Kiefer in, even to this day. You know, (laughs) he he could, he could make 24 when he's 80 years in age and he's a retirement dome. Is taken over by hostages, you know, when he's fighting his walking stick, I'll still watch it. I heard a weird story about him that, um, Apparently, Kiefer Sutherland, he's in, a, he's in a hotel once where he paid the person behind the counter to let him wrestle a Christmas tree to the floor. <laughs> yes, wow. Good guy for a night out by the signs of it. I, I got to say, I, I know we praise in the Lost Boys, right? but I, I actually had to grab my DVD box set of these films this, in a week, and I haven't watched the DVD, DVD player for such a long time. You know, my DVD, DVD player actually creaked and groaned when I pressed play. <laughs> you know, but as I dusted down the cover, I noticed the cheeky tagline in the back of the box set that proudly claims the boys who started the modern era of vampire movies. And, you know, yeah, we praise this film and it is an iconic film, but I've got to disagree with that. I can see why it's built a very strong reputation for itself that stands the test of time. But start of the craze, nah. You know, I can name one film which probably set the ball rolling for the success of The Lost Boys. Okay, I think uh, I think I got my head where was it, which one you're going to go with, but which film is it, sir? Well, it was 1983, Tony Scott delivered The Younger, didn't he? It was a full-on goth lesbian trip with David Bowie, and, you know, the cast that opened up, it, was, it opened up to some mixed reviews and has now become a much-appreciated classic. But I think that started the ball rolling for vampires to be portrayed differently on the big screen. But it was Tom Holland's 1985 masterpiece, Fright Night, that really showed mm. that a vampire film could be scary and fun. You had Chris Randon as the handsome next-door vampire. You had William Ragsdale, the hero next door, who looks wise could easily have been Billy's brother from Gremlins. You had him helped alongside with Rod McDowell's Peter Vincent, who, of course, was nothing more than a homage to Cushing's infamous character. So my personal feeling is that Fright Night is the ultimate 80s vampire horror. You know, it started the ball rolling for so many films to follow. You know, like the underrated Grace Jones' Vamp, which was released a year later. You had Life Force in between. Of course, you had Stupid and, and Entries with Nicolas Cage and Jim Carrey starring. But then, of course, you got all serious again with Catherine Bigelow's stunning, and I mean stunning, Western flick, Near Dark. See, that's what I thought you were yeah. going to say. I was like, he's going to be a Near Dark person. Well, it, it came out the same year as Lost Boys, didn't it? And it's an equally important piece of vamp similar. You know, even though it hasn't got the mainstream audience that it fully deserves. So for the Lost Boys to claim they started the movement, yeah, you know, that led to the lights of 
unfortunately twilight <laughs> but <laughs> thankfully yeah. the early seasons of true blood well they are cheeky biters let me tell you i think it's fair with fright, with fright nights uh, you know me fright nights uh, a goofier film it's i think a difference between this and fright night Partly because of Joel Schumacher, you got your kind of brat pack part behind behind this. You know, you got yeah. your you know you're looking for a guy to set Elmo's fire, and I think I think that side of things matters. I think there's more of a cool youth side to it, which yeah. I pre- absolutely appreciate what you're saying about Fright Night. I don't, but I don't think Fright Night quite has that. I mean, I reckon for me with the Lost Boys, as against other vampire films, there were far scarier ones like Salem's Lot. You've got smarter ones like uh, like Martin. Got more dramatic ones, your interview for vampire one. You've got your more soulful ones like Let the Right One In. You've got your more atmospheric ones like Near Dark, classier for Nosferatu, goofier with Fright Night. But for me, Lost Boys is the most entertaining out of any of those. What even yeah. even more entertaining than Fright Night? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, Fright Night and Light Evil Ed. He was the best part oh. of it, but I don't know. Yeah, Fright, Fright Night. I, I don't. I, I don't really rewatch Fright Night. I've seen it twice. So it was good. Oh my god! The only <laughs> thing, the only thing, Fright Night and Lost Boys have got in common. They had both terrible sequels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, one, the one thing we haven't mentioned inside. The one thing we haven't mentioned. I gotta be honest with, you, with the Lost Boys is the soundtrack. Yeah. I got, yes. You know, is it much like Top Gun? You go. You know, the music soundtrack is absolutely fantastic. You go Echo and the Bunnymans. People are strange. Lou Graham's Lost in the Shadows. Twelve Close. Gerard McCann's Cry Little Sister. I mean, even when you listen to those songs now on the radio, you immediately transfer back to Santa Carla, don't know, you know, and the Frog Brothers. And I think every team back then must have had this album in their music collection, probably next to Top Gun and, you know, The Commitments, you know, mm. which is an odd, visible mix, to be fair. My uh, uh, older brother did. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did find it quite amusing. They had Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me yes. over the credits. But... <laughs> It was Roger Daltrey singing it, because ah, um, <laughs> I thought, oh, this this sounds different. It's good. I, I don't know if it was a rights thing or whether he covered it because he wanted to. But I found that a bit odd. But um, it was still a fun version, and it was quite amusing to have that song over the credits. But "Cry a Little Sister" is an absolute banger, isn't it? That that really is a good driving force behind a, a good few of the scenes in the film as well. Absolutely, Demi. I think it's got that kind of ascendant feel about it, like I was saying about the introduction, you know, yeah. from, from the word go. Like, the amount of times that song features in the movie, it should be annoying, but it never gets annoying. Apart from, of, when uh, get, apart from when you get to past two and three and this gets butchered <laughs> by a, a cover song, you think, knock this off, my ears, my ears. <laughs> yeah, it made, me, it made me wonder if the original artist was too, would, have been, would have been too strict about licensing for music or something. Um, I mean, well, I, I, it was specifically recorded for the film, wasn't it? So you would have thought that with it being the same studio as well, they would have had you know the freedom to use it. But I... I know, we'll get on to I, that. I just can't buy that. Surely, I'm sure. Uh, can we, can we, can we, uh, should we use the original one? And they were like, nah, let's, <laughs> let's re-record it. You know, and we'll, and we'll uh, carry on using the cover for part three, even after people ripped us part with part two. <laughs> um, we'll get to the sequels in a bit, but this has turned into a bit of a loving. So, do you of you guys have anything at all about this film that you're not big on? I said Michael for me. I just find him a little bit too stalkerish. I find I find Star too much of a blank slate. I didn't really care about their relationship, but I did at least 
I gave enough of a shit about um, his about Michael about Michael and Sam's relationship that it there's still a dramatic impact to everything that happened. Uh, no, I can't really. I mean, I got to be honest. I, I know. I, I honestly think you know it's it's not the most influential vampire film from the eighties. I can understand why people think it is and why it's the most popular. But you know, I don't think it's any actual weakness to it. I, if you're expecting a full-on blown horror film, then obviously the Lost Boys is not going to give it to you. So if you're a die-hard horror fan, then you probably will be disappointed at the outcome. Like you quite rightly said, there were so many big hitters from the 1980s, you know, that you know sprayed the blood and unshowed the gore, and the Lost Boys and that kind of film. But I just think it created this this massive pop culture that deserved a franchise. I think I think there's a lot of room for the Fog Brothers to grow. I think every fan, you mentioned Michael and Star, but I don't think fans, especially, you know, the fan base actually care about them really. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just want to see the Fog Brothers in action and they would have loved to have seen a Lost Boys 2 three years later, you know, with the Fog Brothers and maybe Sam in tow fighting more vampires, which sadly we never got. Yeah, true. We shall come to that in just a moment. Uh, what about yourself, Jim? Anything about this one that you're, you don't love? Oh. I noticed in the credits that uh, there was a few credits for surf Nazis. So I assume, you know, you've got that scene on the beach where they're around the bonfire and this is where they want Michael to have his first kill. Mm-hmm. Now, if this is these, if these are the guys that are credited as surf Nazis, surely these evil vampires are doing the local area of service. I mean, if we're, if we're meant to feel, you know, a bit scared that you might join them and you know, get rid of these people, you know, how is that a bad thing if they're getting rid of Nazis? True, true. It's more, morally <laughs> ambiguous. I didn't, I didn't realise it was morally ambiguous till now. Emmerdale in episode two, Nazis in episode three. I, I've never heard, I've never heard, of, heard of free surf Nazi in my life. Well, it's just like, I can't believe it's be people who are ideologically in favour of uh, fascism, but at the same time also surf. Like, well, it's, that's, that's it's, niche. Like that's complex. It's it's probably a reference to the old cult film "Surf Nazis Must Die," uh, mm. I assume. But uh, yeah, I just clocked that in the credits. And that's what, well, what is that bit? Are we meant to feel sorry for them? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, one thing one thing about that that fire scene, right? I think that was one of the best scenes in the movie. But I wanted to see a little bit more of craving for blood from the part of Michael. You know, I wanted to see this idea of. Ah, uh, yeah, I tell you what, you're going to be craving for craving blood. I, I, I want to see him kind of getting like the sweats or something the following day, you know? I want to see a bit a bit more of him going struggling with an addiction for a little period. That could have led itself to all sorts of fun. But, speaking of, uh, of, of getting more blood, we're coming towards a more bloodthirsty sequel, which is Lost Boys 2, The Tribe. Or in fact, just Lost Boys, The Tribe. Lost Boys, The Tribe, made 21 years after the original. And here is the synopsis. Some siblings move into a new new apartment where they have a quirky elderly figure there. One of them is seduced by a Sutherland. And all this happens after the guy ends up being a stalker. They decide if they can kill the head vampire who lives down a mining shaft 
It's quite familiar. This is the tribe. Basically the same plot, but not told as well. Ross, I'm going to start off with yourself here. Have you got, what are your overall impressions on Lost Boys the Tribe? Right, please forgive me now. I'm going to go into a three-minute uh, rant, all right? But I need to get a few things off my chest, right? There's been talk for many years of a sequel in which there was a chance Sutherland's David could return in some form. You know the outcry over a female Ghostbusters team and when Ocean's Eleven becomes Sandra Bullock's Ocean's Eight, Schumacher really wanted to do a sequel called Lost Girls and he had already eyed up Drew Bymore and Rosanna Arquette to star in the film. Now, who wouldn't want to see that film? Yeah, Would you want to see it? You know, instead, we have the guy who played Stifler's brother in a straight DVD (laughs) American Pie sequel. Now, forget Cry Little Sister, I'm going to cry into my pillow. Right? (laughs) No, right. We also have an Eric Red written script available online, which is a prequel set in 1908, that starred David and the Lost Boys, which oddly had Dracula himself turning up and turning the boys into the bike-riding, black-sucking fields. Now, it's a weird story. It messes a bit with the timeline, as I don't know where Max would have quite fitted in, but I'm guessing it was just an early draft. But for some reason, right, the studio decided not to do any of these. They had all these options, and they decided, nah, instead, right, we got this ghastly offering from PJ Pesky, who already set foot into the vampire genre, having directed Dust Till Dawn 3, The Hangman's Daughter, which, let me tell you, if you're going to watch a great vampire film directed by PJ Pesky, then both The Tribe and Dust Till Dawn 3 are not the two best options to have. Now, what pisses me off, <laughs> sorry, is that he weren't originally wrote for the Lost Boy sequel. The script by Hans Wodenoff was actually about surfing werewolves, and was changed to fit the Lost Boys world because it resembled the original Lost Boys. What? Oh, I, it's like, it's I too much of a fucking rip-off, so let's, so let's well, make it a sequel. It's, it's a lot like the later Hellraiser sequels. I mean, you know, for example, Hellraiser Dead, that was clearly not supposed to be a Hellraiser film, with Pinhead turning up as a camo, basically to prove it, it was set in the world Clive Barkley created. I have seen some ghastly sequels in my time. Right? For example, Megan Psycho 2. I mean, what were, they, what were they thinking making that diabolical entry with Mila Kunis and William Shatner? But you know, yeah, it shits on the original storyline, but at least they tried something different. <laughs> the tribe is just a lazy rehash. It's basically a remake. And yes, I get the argument that it made its profit on release more than making back its five-minute budget, but the only reason for that was because of the brand, which on the day of release, sad, pathetic fans like myself rushed out thinking it was going to be this magical trip to Santa Carla. <laughs> Let's buy the soundtrack and relive our use. And it basically ended up as a big fuck you to the fan base. <laughs> and I'm finished. You two can carry on now. Ah, uh, man. The, um, like, where to begin with this? Um, I noticed the director of this uh, he's kind of your go-to guy for dodgy sequels. He's in Hangman's Daughter. Yeah. He also did Sniper Free and Smoking Aces Part 2. Um, yeah. I didn't like this movie at all. But before, actually, before I go into this bit, I've got a quick question. Why did it take 21 years to make a sequel? She mentioned that, the, that, that um, you know, you, you had Joel Schumacher trying to come up with Lost Girls as one, but the first one was quite big, right? Yeah, they made, made the money and... 
you know, I, I just think the lost girls concept is absolutely brilliant. And, it, and there was rumours, you know, that Keith Sutherland could actually return as well because we never actually saw him disintegrated, we remember. I mean, they put him on the antlers, the nice, but we never actually see him explode like these vampires do in Lost Boys 2, you know, or turn to stone. <laughs> but, you know, I, they just the studio just buried their hands and it's, it's, they buried their heads and I just don't get why they didn't push ahead for the sequel because obviously the fan base was there. Even if he didn't take that idea, if he, I mean, it just... It strikes me as, as bizarre. It could be 21 years between sequels and there wasn't like an idea of it's ready to go over. Because they're, they're open to making a sequel if they're willing to make this surf and werewolf film at all. And it strikes me as strange the thought that like, you know, within about 21 years, there's not like a better treatment lying around or like a more recent one. Or that it'd even take as long as 21 years rather than like 1989 or like 1990. Like, it's, it's uh, yeah, bizarre. It makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. I just don't get it. And, you know, to entice the fans, yeah, you had Corey Fieldman, who was hardly in the film whatsoever. And then, okay, this cast, Kiefer Sutherland's half-brother, Angus. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, he's got a gorgeous set. And do you know something, right? <laughs> right? Now, I think, you know, three or four years after... Lost Boys, Kiefer Sutherland starred in Flatliners. He re-teamed up with Joel Schumacher to make that film, right? And it's quite ironic that Angus actually followed his brother because he starred in Lost Boys 2, and then after that, he saw his own career flatline. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I watched this directly after the first one. Oh my God, it was. Immediately just looked horrific. Um, I, you know, I've said it several times, my thoughts on the comparison between film and digital, but it was colour washed. It looked like it had been shot on a phone. And this is probably why it's taken so long to get a sequel, because it was cheap. But, yeah, you don't, you don't need to skimp on this sort of, on this sort yeah. of movie. Something just fell beside me. That's Angus Sutherland coming to get us. <laughs> <laughs> The, I've got to say, I quite liked the direction it went. Um, I'm not saying it was brilliant by any means, but it was very of its time. You've got your Point Break vampires, very clearly influenced by the jackass generation, because they're basically always pissing about stabbing each other and stuff like that, you know. It, it, I just got big, big jackass. But the fact that one of them looks like Bam Margera as well, I, I even had to Google it just to check that it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it, it did just feel very of its time, in which case, you know, terrible. But I actually kind of liked it as a vampire film. Um, I know it nicks most of the beats from the original, but I think there's enough drama in there of its own accord, and the gore gets ramped right up. Um, because clearly, I, I don't know if this came first or whether True Blood came first, but there's definitely you know shades of that in there as well, especially when it comes to the gore. And you know, I think there's a bit more uh, emphasis on that side of things because you've got a lot more nudity and so on in there as well which, you know, Sexy Vampires was big at the time. Um, But one thing that really pissed me off was the many, many callbacks to the original. You know, just absolutely shoehorned in there. 
Mm. You've got the woman coming in. Oh, do you want to watch the Goonies? Yeah. Christ's sake. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre gets referenced again when they come to the house, you know, they're the moving into. So like, come on. <laughs> um, you've got the saxophone guy, which is obviously a different guy. He's overweight, but he's, you know, busking on the street. But it's blinking you miss. Although there was one thing about that is I remember Empire Magazine covering the production of this film. And they were hyping it up, so I can imagine that's why Ross was pretty excited for it at the time as well. And I remember reading an interview with the director, and it made him come across as an absolute ignorant idiot. You know, just, just the arrogance that exuded from them focusing on having the saxophone guy in there again. And at the time, I thought, well, this guy's a prick, and this film sounds shit, which, you know, it's not entirely far from the truth. But the fact that they spent so much time emphasizing on what is nothing more than a one-second bit. (laughs) (laughs) And I I, I immediately went back to that interview and thought, Jesus Christ, I might have actually given this the time of day were it not for that. And all it is is just a little bit in passing, you know, probably some shit second unit shot. Now, for some reason, that stuck really vividly in my mind reading about it all those years ago. I think the excessive gold more, more just makes up for the weak script. I, I thought, well, we haven't got much to go on here, so just yeah. fill every single scene full of yeah. limbs and all that. Yeah. It's, just, it's just poor, absolutely poor. And you want about sexy vampires? Lisa, the vampire in the red dress. I mean, look, right? I've seen enough vampire movies, know that if I'm at a party surrounded by these model women and men and this complete stranger dressed and dancing like she's escaped from a twisty <laughs> twister from dusk to dawn, makes a move on me and seconds later is naked into my shower, let me tell you, I'll know she's a vampire and I'll be getting the shit out of it. <laughs> right? Also, right, these films, Lost Boys 2, I mean, yeah, Lost Boys 2, definitely. It doesn't really practice safe sex, does it? <laughs> I mean, they should run a TV ad in Santa Carla. You know, remember, <laughs> if the fa- if the vampires don't get you, an STD will. Uh, it's not Santa Carla. This is Luna oh, Bay. Oh, right. Yes. We're, um, we we learned this at the beginning when you've got Tom Savini's house and we're breaking in. And they mentioned that one of the people there is from Santa Carla. In fact, by the way, my favourite bit of dialogue in the movie happens during a bit when we're breaking into Tom Savini's house. Is just in case the audience can't figure out what's happening... One of the characters even says, we're breaking in. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the same film where someone will later refer to the relative as little sister to her face. That sort of pipeline dialogue thing, just playing to the piping, making sure everyone gets it. Uh, Tom Savini's cameo was absolutely bizarre. I liked seeing his head. When his head got ripped off and you were chucking it into the sea, I thought, oh, this, this is actually cool. I mean, he looked bored during it. The violence was really scrappy, it was all sped up, and yes, Jim, the digital on it just didn't look good. But at the same time, I had high hopes. Then, I don't know, was one, the bit that really ended it for me was that party sequence, where during a party I was like, and they turned down a night of goonies and donuts to do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, what it took away was the sense of swagger and mischief about the vampires. You know, this is brooding vampires, or something more serious, or Shane, his name is, that's it. Shane doesn't revel in any of it. If he doesn't enjoy himself, then why the hell would we enjoy this, right? You can't see the same kind of seduction going on here, you know? You don't get the same sort of uh, 
uh, oh, how could Nicole resist here? You know, it's just a guy with what I call major soft boy energy uh, taking her for even a, the motorcycle ride. It's so unenthusiastic and dull. Yeah. yeah. Um, but th- there is a bit of backstory filled in prior to this party, isn't there, where they're all from, they all know each other prior to them moving there, don't they? Um, yes, yeah. Because they're not Stifler is an ex-surfer himself and, you know, were, was on the pro circuit with not Kiefer Sutherland. And <laughs> so, so they know each other and she's, you know, kind of grown up in the shadow of that, kind of idolizing him as well. So there is that kind of pushing her towards him in that sense. So I kind of get why she does go off with him. You know, it's kind of a bit of a wish fulfillment, even if he does come across as an absolute moron. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think that's just it. I think it was the um, the brooding intensity of him that made him immediately a lot less uh, immediately a lot less likable. And maybe there's a bit of kind of protesting against the brother here because, and I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who saw this. Chris and Nicole, he seemed incestuously possessive <laughs> over. You know, he's telling her, "All right, we're going to this party. I don't want you speaking to any guys." Then proceeds to go off and have sex with someone himself. Yeah. During this, during this bit where he's having sex in the shower, he goes, "I need to check on my sister." Something you shouldn't even be thinking about. <laughs> then um, we got the uh, girl comes back round to the house later on, where he then proceeds to have sex with her in the room beside the one that his sister's passed out in. And then during the bit where she's shagging not Kiefer, we got. Cry Little Sister playing! <laughs> like, like, the most inappropriate song to have over a sex scene that resembled the sex scene from The Room so much. Yeah, they say, yeah. <laughs> yes, they did big room vibes from that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, those two, those two are one. Like, at the end of the film, we've got their beers, right? They are one drunk night away from fucking each other. Right? And, and that, I just could not get that strange relationship out of my head uh, the, yeah. the, the brother remi- the, the brother reminded me of the brother in Amtavara part two you know <laughs> yes. right yes but <laughs> you want about that sex you know right? you got when Shane and Nicole are heading for sex and you already got that butchered version playing they walk into bed like they were botic right <laughs> I mean this guy probably struggles to get an erection for the best of times you know being undead and all that for Nicole to utter the words what about my brother just before they do it like <laughs> I mean, alive or dead, you're gonna you're gonna struggle to stand to attention after that, aren't you? Oh, jeez, I completely forgot about that part. Yeah. Um. Anyway, back to Shane. I've got a question about this. How long has Shane been a vampire for? The reason I ask is I do not think surfing is a particularly good sport for a vampire. So he must have at some point been like, like he, 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 we, 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 would we. Would we anticipate that this is quite a recent conversion for him? Aye, I, w- I would have thought so because it's you know implied that they have known each other previously, and the main character Chris is only quite young himself. I'd say that having through his early twenties in this, mm-hmm. so they've got to have been fairly recent. All, all of them really, because they all like they come from the same kind of background. Well, Chris didn't know. Chris didn't know him though. Chris, get me wrong. Chris idolised him. He had a poster of him on his wall, 
I mean, I think part of this is maybe a bit of a casting, but I think Angus Sutherland's a very young-looking guy. I think he's supposed to be older. I think I took him as like a Tony Hawk-style figure. Well, if Chris had a poster on his wall, then unless he follows surfing at night, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think that's going to catch on. Let's be honest. He, he maybe it's a, a <laughs> yeah. subdivision. There's some killer waves at night. Maybe they're just following him. Patrick Swayze's footsteps. Uh, maybe yeah. it's meant to be trying to trying to subtly tell us that Angus Sutherland is going to be the Rob Lowe of his generation. <laughs> you, you mentioned your worst film, that worst moment. The worst scene for me was the skateboard car chase scene. Oh, right? fuck yeah. Now, I've been watching. I've been I've been rewatching Fringe recently, right? J.J. Uh, Abrams is is such an underrated TV show. It's better than Lost, and it's a series set on parallel earths. Now I watched that scene and I automatically thought of that TV show because it, so I thought to myself, if there is a parallel Earth, that would be their Fast and the Furious. And it won't be called the Fast and the Furious; it'd probably be called the Slow and the Timid, right? Because <laughs> that's how bad that scene was. Yeah, you know, uh, the director director of this also directed some episodes of Fringe. Did he? Yeah, yeah. She was just like some. I'm like, never going to watch Fringe again. It's like uh, like like some Carl Jung level of <laughs> synchronicity when we're dis- we're discussing. Oh yeah, little uh, Lost Boys Lost Boys trade makes you think of Fringe. Uh, apparently, he directed two episodes of Fringe. Well, Meghan Markle started in Fringe in a couple of episodes, and she ended up being married to the prince. And he ended up uh, making Lost Boys too, so you can see the career paths went totally different ways. <laughs> Fair it is. Um, with uh, with Angus Sutherland, has he done much else? Because I get that this is not like saying, "Oh, Alec Baldwin used to be in this, and now he's being replaced by Daniel Baldwin." You know, this is more like saying Julia Roberts uh, can't be in this, so we'll replace with Eric Roberts. I think he started in two films after that. I think it's something called Kidnap, and if my memory, but uh, something November Criminals. But I think not much actually. I think it actually killed his career. I, I got to be honest, the brother, you know, the brother Ted, the one who stifled his brother, he actually starred in a pretty good horror film, The Hills Run Red. It's one of the most underrated slashes out there. So you know he's got a bit of a he's got a bit of quality in his CV, but he's disappeared for the last ten years as well. Because I no, checked so him as well. Wasn't he bad? The main thing I remember about it was the killer babyface who oh, yeah. at one point holds a gun to his own head. The others are like, "Don't do it." You're like what? Um, <laughs> other than that, it was quite a good film. That was the bad bit. That was the silly bit. No, there's one scene in it where if she starts singing him that that rhyme, that nursery rhyme, and we all and we used to bug him in being so silent. And I think he turns on and says, well, after three minutes, do you think that's going to fucking work? And that, mo- <laughs> that moment is just amazing. And that, that's why I love the film so much. Speaking of uh, loving things, is there anything in this film that you guys think particularly works? Now, Jim, you've been nicer about this film <laughs> than the rest of us. What? Which is maybe becoming a bit of a theme to this show. What, uh, <laughs> what, 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 did, what, what, what did you like about this film? Um, as I say, well, as a sequel to Lost, The Lost Boys, it's bad. It it doesn't work as a follow-up, really. And Corey Feldman is in it for about 10 minutes, you know, collectively. And he is the biggest presence there. Um, but I, I don't know. Maybe it's that Ross was shitting on this so much before we watched it. <laughs> and the amount of DTV movies that I've watched recently that, I don't know, maybe I loosened up in my old age and <laughs> kind of enjoyed it. But I think looking at it for a film from when it was made, 2008, you know, it's your new metal era, Jackass is big, uh, teenagers are idiots. 
<laughs> it's very of its time. But for a vampire film, yeah, it's it's fine. It worked fine as a vampire movie. There was plenty of OTT gore. Um, the direction was shite. There's no two ways about that. He loved fucking with the frame rate, especially when you could see them, the characters who are mid-transformation toward vampire, they, you know, craving for blood. All of a sudden it's going at about five frames a second and it's, why? Why does he need to do that? Um, but I just, it's, it's a very average vampire film and it's by no means terrible but you know i can see where you're coming from especially with it being a sequel to the lost boys it is bad uh kobe fieldman i mean he, he should have been every lost boy fan watched that to see kobe fieldman and he was hardly in it i think he showed up it in the was the sister across the head with a surfboard you know that was his mm, grand yeah. entrance which was stupid he also had a scene of him <laughs> down, down in a raw egg with garlic and holy water for no apparent reason unless he thinks he's walking balboa but uh, the best thing for me was probably the mid the the credit scene at the end, you know, where mm. Sam and Ed, uh, Sam and Egg meet. Uh, yeah, it takes a big dump in the original, you know. I mean, you know, we know that they survived all that shit, and Sam still gets bitten, you know. It yeah. is a bit, it's a little bit of a fuck you to the fan base. Yeah. It's, a bit, it's a bit like the last turn of the film, you know. That sequel ruins T two for me now, and it's probably yeah. one of the reasons why that flopped at the box, box office. But to see Corey Fieldman and obviously Corey M, just that one scene alone, basically makes it worth the purchase. It was a nice selection. moment, but I, I do agree that it kind of undermines the original by yeah. having him as a vampire. He couldn't, like, he could have had a cameo as anything well, to, to lead into the next film. But, right, but did, Jim, sorry, this is, this is the problem. I go, this is why he's such bad written and bad directing because there's an actual alternative scene you can see on YouTube that saw Sam, who was not a vampire, knocking on the door of Edgar's. And he warns him that his brother, Alan, who was now a vampire, is heading back there for this big, massive war. That could have been killed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, if you believe that if anyone was going to get bitten, it'd be one of the Fog Brothers, you know, not poor oh, Sam. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so, it, just, it just sort of seems a bit... A bit needless, really, especially yes. as, you know, you're looking at Corey Haim's career wasn't exactly uh, at his peak. The thing is, he he would have been willing to appear in it. Strange comparison, but a bit like Star Wars Episode Seven, right, where you've got three uh, 70s actors coming back for it. You're like, all right, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, and Harrison Ford. The audience want to see the three of them together at some point. Somehow, they should, that would have been nice. And hmm. we don't have that. We're kind of robbed of that moment. It sort of feels like, oh, he's a vampire now. Why? As he said in the original one, he's he's mostly a good kid. You know, we didn't yeah. uh, we didn't need that. Now, I can imagine they had big plans for that character coming up, but obviously tragically died when they were shooting the third film. But I, I, you know, it would have been interesting to see where they went with it. But I don't know why they couldn't have bought. Alan back for this one either. I know he is credited for a deleted scene. That's what the, that was the scene they deleted. That yeah. was supposed to be the original ending. So he actually appears in the credits at the end. And he, you know, it just baffles me. This absolutely baffles me. A few other points of this. I want to, as you first hear, even my compliments for it. The <laughs> vampire reveal when you go when 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 we've got the uh, re- reveal that we're at a party of vampires because they keep slashing each other and guts fall out. I actually thought that was quite cool. I feel you have a murder out of it. Well, it looks like a murder happens, and he's like, oh, man, starts like putting his guts back in. I thought that was quite amusing. 
didn't particularly see the same joke twice later on, but hey. The use of the same song, I didn't like we had a shit cover version of Cry Little Sister. At the same time, I liked we had that at least. And also, when Corey Feldman was around, he upped the energy immediately. Mm. Now, there were some bad bits of this. At least in this one, he in the third one he could, but he could not keep his voice consistent in this one. It was great. And it was during the dramatic bits where he kind of drops it. He stops. He almost forgets he's doing a comedy performance. Um, I also did not buy for a moment that Edgar would have grown up to be a surfing fan. Like, they were like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, I know he's got to be for it to work because he got the whole, uh, you know, I want to try and uh, shape a surf. I don't know what shaping a surfboard means. I'm not a surfing fan, but I didn't buy that he'd have grown up to do that. You know, I think something like the comic shop we see in part three would have been a much more natural way for yeah. the character to go. And also, there's just a few bits where it was quite sad to watch, I guess. I think it's because um, something this movie lacked was it lacked a sense of fun and mischief about it, as I was saying earlier. And then when you've got him kind of acting like he was trying to recapture the performance he had as a kid, he just sort of looks a bit out of place, a bit sad, really. And mm. uh, that was unfortunate. Yeah, I, I think that is one of the big parts where it fails. As I mentioned, speaking about the first film, it's all adults and annoying surf bros in this one. You're not going to really you know, endear towards that as much as you are, you know, this ragtag band of kids from the first film. Uh, I mean, Corey Feldman does elevate the film miraculously once he starts, you know, with what we expected of him for the entirety. And he does come out with some fun one-liners. He's like the John Matrix of the Lost Boys at this point. <laughs> Build a man a fire, and he'll be warm for a day. Light a man on fire, and he'll be warm for the rest of his life. <laughs> there were some good one-liners in there. But it happened far, far too late in the film. I think he cuts a sad figure in some ways. I mean, he's like he hasn't grown up. He lives in a caravan, you know, he's, he's obviously yeah. his life is hunting down vampires. I mean, I know we're going to get to third one in a bit, but, you know, the girl in the comic book shop in the third one, you know, she flirts with him and there's just no reaction there, is it? He reminds me a bit of Darwell from Walking Dead, where, you know, his, yeah, his, his, yeah. Yes, his, 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 main life, his main life is just vampires and that's it. Yeah. And it's quite sad, actually, but I think, I think when you go about his performance in the second film I just think he misses the dynamic of his brother next to him and probably yes. Sam because when you get to the end of Lost Boys 2 and then you've got that beach scene with him and Sam all of a sudden you've got the quality of the film and it's a shame the director the writers the studios everyone involved just did not see because we could have had a lot we could have, we could have had a straight to DVD Lost Boys 2 sequel but let me tell you it could have been a hell of a lot better than what we had yeah um, well fair play to Feldman again I mean he looked like he'd barely aged a day Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair dues. I agree with Jim. Lose you something about the kid perspective as well as the teenage one. This is the teenage angst film, but without your fun goonie side of things. Got no particular quest to find the lair. It's just they're like, oh yeah, goes to let's go to the mine shaft. <laughs> you know, you get there. <laughs> and uh, for all the gratuitous violence this film has, correct me if I'm wrong here. Up until the campfire scene which is again taken from the original one there. There's not... <coughs> we don't actually see the vampires kill anyone outside the first scene. They kill Tom Savini, and then fuck all yeah. happens for a yeah. long period of time. And then they've got the campfire scene where we don't know any of the people getting killed. 
But even that Tom Savini scene, I mean, he was obviously set up to be the Drew Barrymore cameo, you know, which only works if you are a proper horror fan. <laughs> I, I mean, love you, the idea yeah, of the yeah. Drew Barrymore cameo. Well, it is, and it's all this kind of big name who gets killed off at the beginning, and the modern audience thinking, probably think, no offence, Tom, who is this person? <laughs> I know? love the idea of people going, fuck, we killed Tom Savini already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, if you say, but if you said that to a 19, you would be like, who's Tom Savini? <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know. Fair, fair to you, actually. I'll give, I'll give that, uh, sort of that. The sort of imply the beginning, he's, you know, he's going to be like the uh, the big head vampire or something. Yes, I, I thought that as well. I, I did get the impression that uh, are these moving in on his turf is this like some sort of going to be a rival gang in Turf War and it immediately drops that there's no other mention of any other vampires <laughs> after they kill Tom Savini's character and it just I was dumbfounded by that for the rest of the film I just didn't understand why they had to make him a vampire if they weren't going to be any more vampires other than this gang <laughs> and uh, yeah no, absolutely another thing I wanted to say where I'm going to agree with Ross here is about the uh, car chase, we've got the bikes and the skateboards. Possibly the single most uncool action scene <laughs> I can think of. <laughs> and the music playing over it as well. Oh my gosh. Like, I don't know what they thought, like, oh, the audience will get so pumped up when they hear this, you know? <laughs> um, Ross, did you like anything about this film? Uh, the last scene with Sam and Edgar, and that's that's about it. And this is why it's in my DVD collection next to, you know, parts one and three. And that's the only reason. I was so crushly disappointed. There's only a few films that make me angry when I watched, you know, especially sequels. And this one, oh my good gracious me. Go back in 2008 when I watched it that Monday morning. So excited. Booking a day off work. <laughs> you know, come on. I used a holiday, you know, to watch this. Not a sick day, an holiday. And I just remember sitting there thinking, what the hell have they done? We've all, as I said before, we've all seen some really good straight-to-DVD horrors, but this one, well, they should have just chuck it away, let me tell you. Yeah, I know a guy who, um, he's using a holiday because he's a game that he really wanted to play coming out, right? He thought the game was going to be huge, so he gets about five in the morning to go stand outside game on his day of release. He was the first person in game to buy it, and that was Duke Nukem Forever. Oh he's my god. <laughs> Get him back to his house. And 20 minutes in, he's like, I made a mistake. Well, I, I, I've only ever done it, I've only ever done it a second time. I think it was Hellos 2 that came out a couple of years ago. And I remember uh, Amazon Prime is coming on out on the Monday. Oh, I booked the day off. Let's watch it. It didn't turn up till the Wednesday on the streaming site. Uh, <laughs> I said the Monday all day, refreshing Amazon. Come oh, on, come no, on, come on. And it, oh my God, honestly, never again, never again. <laughs> I remember having one of my mates coming from, uh, he's coming up from uh, Edinburgh to Aberdeen because we were both so excited with the release of a movie, but we wanted to watch it together. And that movie was The X-Files, I want to believe. Oh. <laughs> I, I had such a huge fun of The X-Files. That was one of the films that you're watching it trying to convince yourself you're having a good time at it. Oh, and it's you're like, yeah, that was good, that was good. Uh, about half an hour later, we're sitting in a pub going, that was shit. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've, you know, with, with the X-Files, that's the only TV show that must have jumped the shark a thousand times. i tell you what, I've boycotted the X-Files. I started watching uh, in protest damn it and it did get cancelled so maybe maybe my boycott worked um, <laughs> I boycotted the X-Files because I saw the first episode of season 10 where they're saying oh by the way all the aliens 
that's just a load. That's just a load of piss. I hope you know that, right? The Mulder goes really, and then suddenly he's no longer a believer, right? Yeah. It's like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> if we're gonna take this, right, the slap in the face to fans, I get what we're trying to do was streamline the lore to say, all right, well now we're just starting over again, a soft reset. I want to see a point by point breakdown of how they fake things like the shapeshifter, you know. I want to see how they go, oh, you have oil that can jump between people and going into their eyes, right? I want to see how they explain that as part of a government conspiracy. You know, if we're going, oh, it's not alien. With the evidence available to him, Mulder would obviously believe it's alien. They'd already had him having a crisis of faith back in season four. Then in season five, he sees a great big spaceship, right? So he'd already wavered. But he went back anyway. He already saw that miracle child as well. You know, who that miracle child who ends up giving evidence during his fucking trial, right? <laughs> and he's still like, oh, yeah, no, I, I believe you. I think it's all pish as well, right? Uh, anyway, boycotted it. Well, luckily you don't see the twist in, I think, the season after where it really does just piss on the entire fan base. And I think it was, I never watched it after that myself because it, it ends that season, that season 10 ends with a pretty good, oh, my God, they're actually doing this. And then the next episode, no spoilers, they just totally change it all. I mean, it's up there with Bobby Ewing stepping out of the shower in Dallas. <laughs> and that's <laughs> all I'm going to say in the matter. And if anyone's watched the X-Files, you totally understand what I mean by that. Going from things pissing on their fan base, let's leave Lost Boys number two to go to Lost Boys number three. He's breeding an undead army. Stands between him and the annihilation of the entire human race would be us, Frog Brothers. We haven't been the Frog Brothers for a long time. I can't do it without you. They can do what they want whenever they want to do it. Are you guys after drinking or still up? If I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna need weapons. Lots of really expensive, custom-made weapons. Let's rock and roll. So, we're back for Lost Boys Free, the first. And uh, we're... Leaving Luna Bay here to go to another part of California, which was actually shot in South Africa. Guys, did you notice that first of all that we're uh, we're not in California any longer? Yeah, I could tell bizarrely from the roads. Oh, the, the, it was a Californian road. Well, in America, everything's pretty much a grid, isn't it? But you know, you, you've seen enough films to know what LA looks like, rural and central. Um, but you could tell just by you know, certain constructs on the side of the road, that sort of thing, it, it was definitely not of an American design. And that obviously, once you get to the credits, it says it's filmed in South Africa. So, it's, yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I was watching of the architecture, I was like, ah, it's not a building in California. I, I'm yeah. not going to say, but I, I know enough about architecture to go, ah, it's definitely in South Africa. I just went, that's ah, not in California. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the comic book store... Uh, where there's quite a few scenes, does its best to look like a Venice street corner, I think. But other than that, it's uh, absolutely not California. How about you, Ross? Did you notice that? 
Nah, by that stage, my eyeballs were still bleeding after watching Lost Boys <laughs> 2, so... <laughs> <laughs> this, this brings me actually to when I was watching part 3 I watched this the same day that I saw part 2 and I reckon that's why <coughs> this was not a properly good film right I think it was an improvement of the second one but I think part 3 is now warm towards it because it wasn't the second one this is the sort of thing if it were an album then this would be called the return to form it doesn't mean that it's good yeah. It's just the best one since the last good one. Yeah. And we end up with this movie that, uh, fair play to it, to compliment it out of the gate, it doesn't just tell the story of the first Lost Boys again. So yeah, it's, doing, it's yeah. doing something totally different. I thought that was good. And also from the, from the get-go, it's immediately much, much more fun than the second one. Mm. You know, We've got that whole bit of a senator uh, vampire at the beginning, right? And you know, we've got, ah, yeah, it's the frogs. And... We're just straight into the action for it. It wasn't brooding, you know. It wasn't trying to do this kind of uh, like intense, tragic vampire kind of kind of stuff. No, it was just going straight into it and saying to the fans, "Hey, this is probably what you wanted, isn't it? The frog bro is taking out vampires here and there, and now you look at them doing it in Washington D.C." And Corey Feldman immediately, his performance just felt so much more in line with the original tone because the rest of the film was quite goofy. And so his performance could be goofy. You know, he kept a voice throughout the entire thing. There was none of this getting rid of it when his character had to be serious. And then we get the comic book intro. It just felt so much more of a sequel to the original film. I think that, you know, Dario Piano took over the directing duties. I think he he totally understood what he had to do from the beginning. You know, it's like you said, you know, uh, the opening scene, which it's it, it set the tone up differently than it from totally straight away from what the second one was about and I, I think the tension was there from the off because the scene is actually inspired from uh, the Lost Boys comic book Storing the, Storing the Frog Brothers and which is a pretty decent read so I think that alone was done on purpose to get the fan base back on board and I think it worked perfectly because from the off to see the Frog Brothers which everyone wants to see you know Mm-hmm. already I was sitting there going oh yeah this is different I like this you know and yeah honestly I, I got a lot of time for the tribe i got to be honest with you you mean the first the, tribe, the first sorry the first yeah <laughs> I still got the tribe in my head what about yourself Jim what are your overall impressions yeah it does it definitely sets the tone for the rest of the film There's, it's, it's not messing about is it Although I did see the vampire dentures and think, oh, for fuck's sake, here we go. (laughs) And then what happened to Alan in the beginning as well, where they're force feeding him the blood. He's just come back, man. Why why have you got to do that? We've gone that whole previous film without him. And then they're near enough offing him straight away in the opening. So I, Again, I was like, oh, God, what are they doing? But, you know, credit where it's due, it immediately does look a lot better than The Tribe. I mean, both, you know, how it's directed, how the actual film looks, and just the overall action that's going on as well. It just, you know, it pretty much is a statement saying this is not the last film. The comeback of those of those two, at least seeing them on the screen together again, do this with the flashbacks and stuff. You know, it like it draws attention 
to how cool it is to see these two brothers. Yeah. I thought like, also the tribute we do throughout, throughout it to uh, Corey Haim as well. You know, I think the thing is it's a genuine but very flawed attempt to continue the character's stories here. You know, it's a means yeah. of doing something that seems to whisper gently to the original one at points and does feel like it's part of the same universe. It does seem like the flashbacks, and they are, they, they do fit quite well. And you've got that whole little subplot with the Batman comic, you know, originally calling back to that. I mean, obviously they wanted him in the film, but unfortunately he died. So I can imagine it was going to be quite a different picture up until that point. But it was nice how they did it. It didn't feel shoehorned in either. Which, you know, a lot of sequels where they call back can feel like, well, well, like the last one where they just come up with stupid references every five minutes. This one felt much more natural and wasn't aggravating. It actually felt like a, like, like a Fast 7 vibe, you know, and I, I don't want to bring that up after what I'm doing you know, with, with Paul Walker, but the Corey Haim, you know, actually, you know, everything that happened to him and his, his sad death as well. It, it brings some like a heartwarming thing to the entire film. Mm, yeah. I mean, yeah. there was never any tension for the film actually to follow straight from the scene between Egg and Sam. Uh, Corey M actually done an interview and said that he would not appear in the third film, but he will appear in the fourth film. So obviously, oh. the third <laughs> film was going to the third film was going to set that, you know, and it's massive big storyline for the fourth one. And it's quite sad, really, because we never actually got that reunited Lost Boys moment between the three male actors. But like you quite rightly said, you know, I think the thirst is a decent tribute to Corey M. You know, as you said, we, got the, we get the comic book there. You know, we get the Batman 14. You know, there's it's proper Easter egg love letters to the original. Yeah. None of the stupid, oh, let's hold some antlers to the screen nonsense in the trailer. Yeah, yeah. That felt, you know, forced and needless. And when you say, uh, David, you know, you, you can't believe, you know, you wouldn't believe that uh, Edgar like surfing, you know, when <laughs> in this, selling this comic book collection is a genuine heartbreaking moment, you know? Yeah. Because you actually think, my God, this is a guy, you know, this is his life. And the, as you said, the graveyard scene when he goes to visit the him, I think it's, it's such a good closing touching moment, not just for the characters, but for the two guys in real life who were genuine, genuine friends. You know, and Corey Feldman, Feldman actually been there a lot for Corey him, and I, that's why I'm glad this film actually exists. I would personally recommend this film to people in a way that I wouldn't personally recommend watching the second one. I think for me, the biggest problem with this movie, right, they're wise to concentrate on um, on Edgar in this, and Corey Feldman's very good, but he's got absolutely no chemistry with any other member of the cast. I think the problem with it is not on his part. I think the problem this time around, where in the last one, when he kind of felt like he's in a different universe from everyone else, in this one, I think everyone's sort of going for a slightly heightened reality again, but aren't quite managing. I think the characters are a bit too broad and generally quite unsympathetic. You know, when they're going, all right, let's take some digs at Steffi Meyer. Uh, you know, you've got the Twilight Officer <laughs> essentially being played up in it. They've got like, all right, here's a reality TV star in this one. And Zoe in it, I did not think was quirky enough to have sexual tension with with uh, with Corey Feldman. I just I just sort of thought that uh, they knew what we were doing with him, and it just didn't quite work as an ensemble piece. 
especially as we don't really get to know the vampires in this one at all. You know, the vampires have like two or three scenes before the very end. They don't do very much. Yeah. But do you think that works? Do you think that works? So, I mean, I think it's obviously because Corey Feldman, uh, Feldman was so sidetracked. You know, he's virtually a backstory in his own fucking story in the second one. Let's be honest. Mm. Uh, so the tension was there. Like, this is what we're going to give the Lost Boys fans. We're going to get the Frog Brothers back together. And they think this is why something had to be cancelled out, and that was the vampire storyline, which I think it actually worked. I mean, I'd rather see more of Corey on screen or was Edgar than surfing, blinking, you know, vampires who are part of, you know, the jackass crowd. I mean, I'd agree with you on that one, but I, I think this is a bit of a false dichotomy. The thing is, the film is only 81 minutes long. And especially as we're building up, like, this is the original vampire. We're picking up with this person here, you know, this person could eat, could eat David or Max for breakfast, right? And he's just going to be a little bit, like, cooler, I guess, more charismatic. I thought the basic concept of having this uh, vampire going around the world doing raves where people would end up drinking blood, end up being, being like, converted, I thought it was a really cool idea. They were talking about, oh, yeah, he's building up armies all around Europe. You know, I thought, all right, this is actually, this is pretty decent. You know, we're talking about a low-budget film that's able to give global stakes here. But then the missing link was when we do meet the vampire, I just thought he was a bit shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, don't know anything about the actor, um, but, I mean, yeah, I don't I, think he was necessarily bad. I just don't think he had much to work with. Well, it's, it's a case of, I think the tried to emulate the first film again, haven't they, where well, you thought this was the head vampire, but <gasps> dun, 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 it's this little annoying Tory wank, actually. And, <laughs> Agreed. Uh, I, wasn't, I, wasn't, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't even talking about the twist vampire. Oh. Like, the guy who we're meant to think is, yeah, we'll come to him in a yeah, minute. DJX, the DJ, something like yeah. that. Yeah, like, DJX. What a cool name, huh? Yeah, this went like, oh, he's like... Um, He's like a Tim Westwood of uh, of a lot of boys. But David, I need to ask, because what you just said earlier, you said you'd recommend this to people, but would you ask him to watch the second one first to get more appreciation of Uh, the third one? No, I mean, I think actually something the second second one sets up, I guess, so maybe why the second one becomes slightly better actually after seeing the third in a way is because the second one represents... Uh, Edgar's rock bottom moment, you know, this is him at his lowest. Right, yeah. And in the third one, he kind of finds a reason to live again. Right. I just, I just, I think, you know, especially if you watch them back to back. I mean, the second one is so poor. I mean, if, if this came out, before, if this was Lost Boys two, would it be more, you know, because this is warmly received by the Lost Boy fans. Let's be honest, you know, this has got quite a good high rating. The fans, the fans like it. The fans enjoy it. They did want to see if a fourth would happen, a straight to DVD, which never happened, of course. But I just wondering if they still have that same love if this came out instead of the tribe. You know, I'm going to check something here. I, I'm going to call BS on this uh, because I think it's got a higher, a higher rating. Um, both of this, both this and the tribe are zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And on IMDb, it's four point five for the tribe, and only five, and only five point one for uh, for the first. You know, you should never believe anything on the <laughs> Come on, David. Uh, if you listen to you know the, the horror community, the, every Lost Boys fan knows that this isn't you know 
groundbreaking film. But after the depth of hell we went through watching the second one, this is such a marked improvement. <laughs> I got it, it. It is. It really, really is. You know, and I'm, I'm, as I said before, I'm just really glad that it's there. But I just don't think it'd be that much appreciated if it was the second film. And I got to be honest with you, I think I'd rather this not be called The Lost Ones. If this was called The Fog Brothers, you know, I think, you know, it'll suit a lot more. But obviously, the Lost, they needed their Lost Boys title to sell the brand. If I just checked on the on audience scores and Rotten you stop looking. 25% <laughs> versus 33%. Right, go back to go back to South and let's see what they say. <laughs> um, now, um, yeah, to be honest, I mean it's it's consistently scoring better, and I do think it is a I do think it's a it's a definitely the, the stronger of of the two. I agree with you that Frog Brothers maybe would have been a more appropriate name for it. Um, now. In terms of some good things about this one, uh, I mentioned the concept of it I thought was cool. I really liked, for a moment, the vampires leaping out of the airplanes. A tribute to the original one. You've got the same kind of music, of which it's the same shitty cover. You've got, <laughs> you've got the camera soaring around. And it just reminded you, yes, maybe being a vampire could be a good laugh, you know? Yeah, that bit did get me pretty psyched. I've got to say, that... That drew parallels to Point Break much better than the previous film even tried. Um, and yeah, it may be a shitty metal cover, but it still had the melody there. So, <laughs> you know, the tune isn't that bad, but that that was a pretty stylish scene. And really, you know, it, it is a good callback to that sort of exhilarating freedom you've got being you know, one of the children of the night. In terms of other things, Peter in it, right, the the one who we find out is actually indeed the, old, the first ever vampire, which I thought was actually quite a reasonably done twist. I did not see that. Yeah, movie. yeah. The, the way it kind of saved into the old tome that had been given with that imagery, and it kind of shows you the origins of that later on in the film. It's a little yeah, touch that, that was quite neat. Absolutely. The thing is, like, when we bring the twist in, up until that point, I was going, I don't really care if this Peter kid lives, right? I was saying to yeah. myself, like, <laughs> like, I, don't, I couldn't, couldn't care less. I didn't give a fuck, right? And then, uh, you know, when he turns out to be the villain, I thought, oh, that's, actually, that's pretty neat. I didn't quite buy uh, Edgar necessarily giving enough of this shit about this to do this. But at the same time, I guess it did bring the parallel of she wants to save her brother, which you couldn't do. And, you know, it's cheesy, but yeah. fair enough. Um, although, when uh, when Alan suddenly shows up event, I was like, how the fuck does he know where they are? <laughs> <laughs> like, I have no idea we're in an island in the middle of nowhere here. I, I didn't see, I didn't see the twist come in, I gotta be honest with the first time watch. I sat there and like you, I was thinking, oh, okay, I mean he's gotta save this kid who was just, you know, bland and boring or blonde ass like guy doesn't say much in the film. And then he turns around and I'm thinking, Oh my good gracious, he's a dead vampire. And I was actually thinking, Whoa, I like this film. And you you just need these little moments in a shitty film that makes it better. You could sit there for 60 minutes thinking, oh my God, this film's crap. And then you get that one moment, oh, I, got, I can't wait to tell people about it. And I think that's what made The Lost Boys to sell. You need to watch it because it's got a fantastic twist at the end. But obviously when you tell people there's a twist at the end, they go looking for it then, don't they? Which probably spoils it for them. Uh, with, um, 
And with the other bits of this film, the other bits that make you really like it, like, what else stuck out to you guys? There's one kill I loved, the vinyl through the neck. Oof, that was great. <laughs> uh, for me personally, was the final kill where Corey Feldman kills the kills Peter the vampire. Yeah. That mm-hmm. is just one of the best vampire kills I've ever seen in my life, i got to be honest that, that left me with a big grin on my face. Oh, that, that was, was a fun little bit but uh, I can't is. remember what that one line was uh, when oh, I can't remember myself broke enough. that record in half but I was giggling at that as well that was that was good fun you know I mean, overall the action and um, the way they kill the vampires on this is very entertaining it's mm. real good fun I mean, it's a far cry from what we saw in the previous film and as you mentioned does it does the fact that the previous film was so poor compared to this one amplify your enjoyment of yeah. this one? Yeah. I mean, it's a question you could probably only answer if you'd seen this one first, I guess. But uh, Waited the two years between the two of them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, th- th- there is that. I mean, it is a, a, a damn sight more fun. It, it doesn't, you know... It, there is maybe a bit of a lull about halfway through. I, I did find myself, you know getting distracted by my phone but then it soon picks up you you've got that bit where they're at that yard where they're tooling up getting all these fun new weapons and then they get attacked by that vampire horde Mm. and you've got the uv lights i'd say just prior to that bit it was starting to lose my interest but then that happened and then it was just full on from there you mentioned about feldman's distance from the other characters how there was no chemistry going back to what ross mentioned earlier uh, in, in parallels to daryl from the walking dead you do get that impression that he is intentionally keeping himself separated from the rest of the cast i mean even zoe who i thought was a fun addition to the crew I mean, she, she was quirky and you know of you know, interested in things he's interested in, you know. And then you've got the contrast of the alpha vampire's apparent sister, who was a pain in the ass everywhere they went. So it, it's obvious he's going to you know, distance himself from her, despite her obvious advances as well. So, yeah, I think he played it very well, considering. I think with um, with her, with... His, with uh the sister Gwen, I believe her name is. The um, the idea that she goes, okay, well, we're going to bring bring forward this dude to help us. He doesn't believe in vampires, but he's going to be your fellow vampire hunter. Like I felt like it was brought brought in for too sort of broad a contrast between the characters. I didn't think the other part was likable enough. Whether I don't again, I don't know if this is the actor. I think the actor was probably doing fine with the material that he had. But I felt like we're trying to do a comment too much on reality TV. It sort of dates the film quite badly. I mean, I also wondered if a reality TV bit was a dig at Corey Feldman, because he's done a load of reality TV, hasn't he? Yes, he has, yeah. But they're both them, they Corey, and uh, they actually had their own show, didn't they, the two Corys, which, you know, I think it went for four seasons, actually. But you say it's outdated. I mean, does anyone go to a rave anymore? I mean, in, in 2010, I don't think people, I don't think people were raving either. Um, no. I'd be surprised. 
Um, apart, from our, apart from our John, who writes for yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the thing is, it's not uh, it's not got the same sort of immediate appeal of ah crazy biker gangs. You know, your biker gangs and geezers yeah. of the modern of the uh, era. You know, then you've got ravers. But yeah, I think I think the as you said earlier, the vampires do take a back seat to the Frog Brothers and what they're going through, which is a better course for this film, I think. The one line is the one line is were good as well. Though. Yeah, yeah, you know, done monologue. I love that bit. And then Alan turns up. <laughs> yeah. thinking, you know, how can you not get excited for that moment? You know, I think, yeah, here we go. They back together again. I, you know, it's, there's a lot of things that work on it. Obviously, they ripping off Blade in some ways with the waves and the actual storyline, mm, yeah. the blood and all that. You know, and I, the I understand silver that. Silver states as well. Yes, uh, yeah, but you know, you've got. You got Corey Feldman, who probably will never ever be in this world again, unless of course he somehow gets a cameo in the TV series, which will eventually happen. And it, you've got to find that you know it's, it's like a final goodbye, and it's a good way to go out. It's a good way to go out. I've got a couple of my relatively minor complaints. One of them is going to sound horribly picky, right? But <laughs> we know that they've been converting a lot of vampires. You've got they've got vampires as part of their entourage and stuff like that, right? Yet at the rave. I appreciate it's an illegal rave, so it's strange to say this. There was such bad security. <laughs> like, hardly, like, you know, we've got like three or four vampires there, dispatched mostly in quite an easy fashion. And here's another thing uh, Corey Feldman's character, uh, Edgar, of course. Edgar was over priority here. He's got, he's got guns. You know, one of David's rules for horror if you're against monsters or like individuals, they don't have guns. Nor should you, right? <laughs> um, Edgar was overpowered. There was no tension with that. And um, yeah, the other other part, heat part. This continue. This trend continues into the ending of it because we have a fight at one point. One point, which is four versus one, and this is again Doctor Sleep syndrome, where you shouldn't feel worried for the antagonist as they go into the battle. Now, see, it's four. To be fair. There's a horde of vampires behind the fence, and one of them was keeping their base. So it was really three versus one. But still, eh. I, I don't know, because obviously there's a lot of build-up to this confrontation as it is. I mean, this guy is who we're meant to believe is the vampire, you know, the, the guy who's been around for centuries. But, you know, even says himself he's been around long enough to, you know, take everyone on, you know, whether that's arrogance or whatever. It's by the by. But it, I mean, for the most part, it is mainly just Edgar confronting him. His, his colleagues, his other crew, they're kind of involved with keeping that horde at bay. And then you've got that fun landmine that was it a mm. resin grenade where all the spikes shoot out? Yeah, that, um, that was my favorite yeah. of the weapons. Yeah, that was good. You had Zoe trying to get that after they dropped it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but and uh, if, I, if memory serves, I know it's only been a few days since I watched this. But Alan literally shows up when X is besting them, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, but it's, it's like halfway through the fight. I mean, don't be wrong. It's good that we had um, uh, them, them them fighting X for a wee bit because it meant we got to see the Frog Brothers together. But I sort of just wanted to see a few more henchmen or something. I mean, I think the problem was that I assume a lot of the budget was used for this last fight scene. Uh, oh yeah, you, you can tell. You can tell that a lot of the effort for this film had gone into that bit because that was probably the most consistently entertaining part of the film. 
Aye, and I think of that bit, that's why I'd like to see just a few more come in just to be dispatched and you'll get rid of him, but keep, but yeah, keep it, the pressure it, on in the fight. Yeah, it would have been fun because they have had some inventive ways of killing them. And there have been a few little gags prior to that with, uh, I think there was that blonde girl, and she's is that blood on your face? And then all of a sudden, one of the vampires bites her neck and blood spurts all of their own face. <laughs> silly little visual gags like that that they had throughout the film. Yeah, a, a few of those, a few more of those wouldn't have gone to miss, that's for sure. I like that fight scene as well between, uh, I can't remember his name, though. they called him the Duke Nukem character. He's yeah. The, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, he thinks he's so cool and he's down, he's down in the basement and the other vampire says to him, you know, I've been waiting for this for so many years and the fight lasts oh, five yeah, seconds. Yeah. You know, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> you, you, know, you know he was going to be like the shining moment where, okay, you're dead, yeah, no matter what. Before he was going to have a good sparring partner. Yeah. Because, yeah, it, you know, yeah. you've got all that hype. He's got his muscles and he's like, come on in, let's have it. And then he just spies him. And the vampire, the vampire himself was probably more thinner and not so much clean. You think, nah, you haven't got no chance here. And all of a sudden, his head, you know, he's got the Terminator moment, haven't you? His hands through the chest. Yeah. Like, again, yeah, you know. So that's where the budget went. <laughs> <laughs> but then it shows, that, that scene alone shows, you know, the goal works. I mean, it's, it's a really good little startling moment where that's lost in the lost space too. Where it's just needless, needless displays of, you know, blood and guts. Look what we can do. This is ultra violent. This is why this film is 18 and the first one was 15. And then you've got these little moments in Lost Boys 3, like the kill scene at the end, you know, with the holy water, which again, I say was fantastic. You don't need to have this wonderful special effect death to, you know, to bring such a creative moment in a film. Yeah. And I honestly, and I think that death scene alone is. It's probably be- it's probably the best death scene in the entire franchise. I think what it boils down to really is this third film: better directing, better acting, better writing. It's better across the board, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, at this point of agreement, I think we should finish up by talking about some other vampire films that we have not mentioned during the course of this recording. Uh, Jim, do you want to get a story to this of another vampire film that we have not discussed? I'm going to go with Near Dark. I mean, obviously, Ross mentioned it earlier with a comparison. I mean, it came out the same year, but it is a completely different film. But similar to Lost Boys in that it makes up its own variation on the rules as well. Um, for example, you've got the whole blood transfusion storyline in Near Dark where conveniently if you have a blood transfusion that can stop you from becoming a vampire um but it's you know it's like a a, a neo-western it's got a hell of a cool cast i mean it's got half the cast of aliens on it for christ's sake so you know <laughs> you, you know what you're getting yourself in for bill paxton is one of them he can be excruciatingly annoying but i will watch him in anything you know, he he's as equally cool as he can be aggravating. And he's just one of those actors I've always been drawn to. And he does add a you know, he, he does add a level of cool to this film. Um it's been a long time since I've watched it actually, but when ever since I saw it when I was probably a teenager and I saw it for the first time, it is a, a film that stuck with me just for how different it is compared to a lot of other vampire films especially from this time very good answer how about yourself how about yourself Ross you've got a vampire film you want to talk of 
Well, obviously I mentioned Fright Night earlier, so I'm not going to go into that debate again. Uh, the, the 80s was a wash of uh, vampire movies, as we said. So I'm going to look at the 90s, which for some strange reason is sort of died out in it. We had a couple of films like you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula with Keanu Reeves. But the one film I want to mention in that era, which probably was just as influential and fun as probably as The Lost Boys, was uh, from Dustal Dawn. You know, I just mm. think that film was just absolutely fantastic. It starts off like a Quentin Tarantino film and halfway through, I mean, if you don't know nothing about the story and you sit there with someone and say, look, this is a Quentin Tarantino film, they're probably thinking, yeah, it's just like Pulp Fiction, you know, it's got that kind of dialogue. And then when they arrive at uh, the Titty Twister, and then all bits are off because you would think, oh my God, this is a full-on vampire film. And it's so much fun. It's so enjoyable. It's funny. And it's, I think George Clooney... I think that was his first film, you know, his major, major film. And I remember watching that thinking, oh, my God, I can't wait to see him as Batman. <laughs> which obviously, <laughs> which obviously <laughs> that didn't work out <laughs> as planned. But, yeah, Dust Alone for me is one of the film, a vampire film I'd probably recommend to anyone who's never seen it. Yeah, no, I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's a very good one. Like, um, in terms of my ones... I was thinking about earlier about um, uh, what we do in the shadows, which is which is yes excellent. Um, I've only seen that one once though, so thinking about one that I've seen a bit more recently, I was rewatching Salem's Lot. Is Salem's Lot? I'm talking about the uh, old Toby Hooper one. I've not seen the um, I've not seen the early noughties one. Oh, uh, don't bother! So, don't bother! It's uh, it's awful, absolutely awful. Honestly, it's. I don't even I don't even know why I need to watch it again to actually get a full understanding because I, I think I actually got rid of it in my memory. It's such a really bad film. I think I was first time I watched the the notice when I was thinking, oh my god, I need to stop it and watch the original. <laughs> and I think I think I think that's why I actually done actually because the original is just it's, it's it's fantastic and it's one of the best vampire films. What it really gets right was the thing I was saying earlier about the first Lost Boys. The sense of location in it is brilliant. Yes. You know, and I love the way that it builds up this uh, town where we're seeing slow changes going on here, but everyone's still carrying on with their own life, you know? It's this sort of uh, idea of the threat next door. And uh, while there's some bits of it do look a little bit Garth Morangi nowadays, at the same time, like where it's scary, it is genuinely scary. Of course, we're thinking about a uh, young boy at the window here. Oh, yeah. that, um, gave me ni- that gave me nightmares when I was a kid. Not many horror films did, but oh my good gracious me, when he's tapping on the window, tap, 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 let me in. Oh, it's, brilliant. it's a brilliant moment in horror cinema. Yeah, and it's the way that, like, with, with King originally, when he did this, uh, he wanted to make something that uh, resembled Great Expectations meets Dracula. And, well, uh, <laughs> you know, you do have this like have this in the book. The book's like 600 pages long, but also because you're going for a three-hour film or two-part uh, miniseries, then it does, do, you know, you do get the sense of normality that's created so it can be later disrupted. It's another film that has had a poor, poor sequel. So I think what we learned in this podcast is don't make sequels to a vampire movie. I've never seen the sequel for this. Return to Salem's Lot. Isn't oh, it? it's it's just it's awful. <laughs> I can't I'm, I'm using that I'm using that word a lot tonight, tonight. But yeah, again, it's better than Lost Boys too, brother. Uh, uh, folks, uh, but oh, it occurs to me we never did star ratings for the films. Can I say Lost Boys Part One for me five stars? Part Two is probably one point five stars. And part three is probably a two and a half or three. 
Three stars, we'll see. I would go for four and a half for the first one. I don't normally like to do halves, but it's just something stopping it from being a perfect film for me. Um, I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's still a brilliantly entertaining one, but I'm going to go with four and a half. A minus all the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you're probably going to give me a kicking after this, but I gave the tribe three stars. I actually enjoyed it while I was watching it at the time. Yeah, re- going over it again, I'll probably see its faults for what they are, but I'm going to stick with that. And for the first, I'm giving it three and a half. Cool. And uh, Ross, what about yourself? Well, I can't give Fight Night five stars simply... Be- oh, no, Fight Night, sorry, Lost Boys uh, five stars simply because of such films like Fright Night and uh, Near Dark, which are, of course, vampire masterpieces. So I'll have to agree with Jim and say four and off for The Lost Boys. Uh, second one, I can't give it any rating whatsoever. Honestly, I can't. <laughs> And as for the third one, I actually did do the review for all the cut films, so I'm going to stick by my original rating, which was three out of five. One last thing, I've looked up the top five vampire films of all time, according to Rotten Tomatoes. Do you want to guess what's in the top five? <laughs> uh, please don't say Twilight. It's it probably is, isn't it? Oh, thank goodness that. <laughs> Go on, um, I'm going to guess... Is- Bram Stoker's Dracula in there? You mean the Francis Ford Coppola one? I do. It is not in there. Fair enough, because that's, that's one film 10. I've not been able to watch all the way through, because I think it's fucking terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth watching for Keanu Reeves' American accent. Ah, British accent, I mean. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so Dracula dead and loving it. The US <laughs> <Leslie> Nielsen. <laughs> it's not in there either. 30 Days and 30 Nights. Um, uh, no, it's not the top 10 either. Oh. Um, I can tell you, the all of these films have been mentioned so far. So, number five is The Lost Boys. Right. Number four is Interview with a Vampire. I mentioned it briefly. Just, yes. Cracking. I think yeah. I mentioned it briefly at least. If I didn't, I yeah, shall... Yeah, I think you uh, did, yeah. So I shall delete that bit. <laughs> um, three is What We Do in the Shadows. Um, which is fantastic. I mean, I think with What We Do in the Shadows, it's um, it's got a really good combo of horror moments and laugh out loud comedy the t- the t- the tv show was worth watching as well oh that's a good i, I yeah. like in the film where they actually do reference lost boys as well that's a cracking cracking little scene oh, how do you like your biscotti <laughs> <laughs> how do you like your worms uh number two uh oh yeah by the way that's everything right so the Jumping all the way back to the second Lost Boys, the the conversion scene with how do you like your worms? And then in that one, it's just, here, drink from this flask, right? <laughs> um, anyway, so num- number two uh, is Let the Right One In, which yep, is yep. phenomenal. Yep. Uh, great book, uh, great book and great film. Uh, and the remake of it, I thought was even quite good as well. Um, I thought it was solid. It's solid in well, it. Well, yeah, it, it didn't take too many liberties with it. I mean, it's no. practically the same as the Swedish version, but obviously for an English audience. Yeah, like it's a shame that it had to, had to exist at all. You know, you like to think that people would get over the one-inch hurdle of uh, subtitles, but at the same time, yeah, yeah. Um, at the same time, like, you know, if you are going to remake it, it's as good a remake as you're going to get. Yes. Um, oh, definitely. 
And it was nice, just you, know, you get a little shiver up your spine when you see the the hammer logo at the beginning. So that was good. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean overall, it's a far less subtle film, you know. And um, oh, uh, the the original is far better in, in contrast, but it's still a very good effort. I, I remember seeing the directors. We were talking about um, uh, making it going like, oh yeah, well. Uh, this is actually isn't a remake. It's an, it's an adaptation of the same source material, right? You're like, hold on, hold on. This is an adaptation <laughs> of the same source material. Isn't it interesting that both versions of the film drop the same subplot? Um, <laughs> I thought I, I, I thought that was a BS one. Um, but overall, yeah, uh, both of them decent, but left, right, when end, that's the way forward. The uh, number one best uh, vampire film of all time, give it a drum roll. It's going to be Nosferatu, the 1922 version of it. Wow, fair enough. <laughs> I've not seen that one myself. Uh, it's been plenty of clips of it, but it's, it's a, a very, very good film. But it's a shock that's the number one. Yeah, it's got the critical consensus of 97% fresh. Um, We describe it as one of the silent era's most influential masterpieces. And I guess that's part of it. You know, um, in terms of the impact that Nosferatu's had, you can't really fuck with it. No. (laughs) I'm glad you you mentioned that because I forgot about Shadow the Vampire from, uh, what year was it, 2000 with William Defoe. Oh, John Malkovich is in that as well, isn't he? That's it, yeah. And it's based on the Nosferatu. And it's a pretty, pretty, really good underrated vampire film, which sort of gets forgotten by people. And it's only when you just said that, I, I just got reminded of it. And that's another film I, you know, I recommend to anyone to watch. Yeah, now that, that I remember, I, I've seen that once back in the day. It was pretty, it was pretty damn good. A very um, good meta horror, you can call it, call it meta. I, I was waiting to see if they'd be dicks about it and put The Descent on the list, because that's sometimes flagged up as a, as a vampire film. And, uh, you know, I mean, sort of is um, Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is another one that scores quite high Your Fright yeah. Night at number 17 that's Blade. disgusting it's, uh, <laughs> it's Blade's coming back I think isn't it yes it is yeah, yeah it's uh, going to be Mahasha Ali uh, playing him but I've read that it's not going to be R rated they're going for the PG-13 audience so is it really going to be as good as the Wesley Snipes version. Are we trying to do this as, with, with, as part of the MCU, or is this totally... I, I, would, I would have thought so, because... Uh, was it Fox that originally had played? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, so now that they're with Disney, I assume they're going to be amalgamating that one as well. Because sure Wesley Snipes has been talking about it, though. Has he, has he got another Blade project or something? No, he said he said he can't be on it, which I don't think it are, but it'll just sort of wrecked illusion, you know, you need to stand on his own feet, and let's be honest, then I've, uh, you know, Wesley Snipes turn up halfway through playing a porter, porter or something, I won't work with it. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose what they might be trying to bring in here is, uh, not, to go, not to risk spoilers here for anyone who's not been watching WandaVision, but it feels like we're reaching the point where the multiverse is about to be ripped open. Yes. Oh, such, yeah, we, definitely. We might I mean, just have Blade show up in it. Yeah, well, you can't escape the casting news for the next Doctor Strange film, can you? It, it, as soon as someone gets announced for it, it's all over social media. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to be the introduction to that. And Well, we'll see where it goes. I mean, it could go either way, couldn't it? I mean, I'm fully expecting uh, the end of 
WandaVision to feature the X-Men appearing. That's, that's why I'm, I'm assuming it's going to happen here. I'm sure Disney's got a few more sli- uh, tricks up his sleeve before, you know, so, for the end. I just feel like, like, obviously, after Friday's episode, no spoilers here, they've got a lot to cram in in the last episode next week. You know, I'm I'm just going with the flow on this. I've I've been enjoying it, and I've I've not really been overthinking what's going to happen in the next one because I've just enjoyed how each episode's concluded, especially the previous one. That was a cracking, sinister ending. I, I, I like that, and yeah, I'm just enjoying it for what it is. I'm not really fussed about cameos and so. But there's one scene in the last episode which is probably the best thing Marvel's done. I cannot. <laughs> Spoiler for anyone, but it's such a brutal, stunning I scene. I think we're thinking of the same scene. I, I, I was, I was yes. flabbergasted. I weren't expecting it. I was sitting there thinking, oh, this is nice. This is what's happening. This is why WandaVision's been created. And then, bang! And I'm like, oh my good gracious me. I sat there, I sat there with my mouth open, and when a TV show can do something like that, then you know, yeah, this is special. You're watching something really, really special here. And again, I say, I think the weekly release is actually benefiting the show. Because there's no spoilers. You haven't got someone who's binge watched it all in one hit and all of a sudden it's all over social media. Everyone is watching this together. And it's such it's such a rare thing these days. And I think it's just yeah, I can't wait till next Friday. I actually cannot wait till next Friday. <laughs> is, is next Friday the ending? Or is it gonna be if it's I thought it was a penultimate episode next Sunday, so not the next no, Friday. I think, no, I think I think it's the last episode next week, and I'm sure it was. Ah, okay. I'm sure well, it was sure it is. Perhaps I'm wrong, but I'm sure I read it's the last episode next week. Fair days. Well, well, folks, we, we don't know when this is dropping, so one of us is going to be right here. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, on this point about uh, about hopefully fantastic endings, let's wrap up this show. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us for this uh, trip to Santa Carla and other places. Um, we uh, hope you carry on visiting our website. And it's a goodbye from me, from Jim, and from Ross. Right, guys? Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. See ya. For news, views, and reviews, check out horrorcultfilms.co.uk. Audio.